Welcome to Ghost Divers. Did you see what I did? I said Happy New Year instead of hello. This is our... Oh, yeah. It is, it is the New Year now. Yeah, this is our New Year special. Um, this is going out on January 1st. It's our first of our, our annual New Year specials. Um, and basically the idea for these... we've I've talked about this on like other episodes. But maybe people just saw this pop up in their feed. It haven't been listening to the Utena episodes. And they're like, what the fuck is this? Um, oh, that's even better. That's kind yeah. of even better. Um, we we have decided uh, this is something that we were actually kind of talking about last year, but we are like getting the podcast off the ground, and it just it felt too soon to like do a special like this when we've been going for like you know we'd been recording for more than a month, but I think the podcast had been going for like about a month. Um, yeah, you but, have to you have to have at least one season under your belt before you start doing holiday specials. Mm-hmm. I think that's the rule. Um, but yeah, the the idea was kind of. I mean, part of this is that I take off the 12 days of Yule. Um, and so it just gives me some like flex time where I f- feel more comfortable being able to just edit another podcast episode. Um, and the other thing is that we just thought it would be fun. It would be like a chance for us to talk about things that we would never normally do on the podcast, like what we're talking about today, independent people. Um, and then I also kind of figured that um, even though it's not like our you know, we are, we are now older than one year as a podcast. Um, but it can kind of become the thing where we're like celebrating like, yeah, another year of the podcast. Um, so that, that's kind of the, the intention here. So I wanted to start with sort of a, a retrospective of our first year. Um, oh, also I haven't said I'm your co-host Neve and I'm joined <laughs> by your other co-host Connor. Yeah, I sure hope this isn't the first episode of Ghost Divers that you've ever listened to, because... It might be. Maybe kinda... you don't care about anime, but you do care about Independent People by Hoddledore Loxness, um, and you're like, I'm going to listen to this episode, and then you're looking at the rest of our, our podcast feed, and you're like, why is the rest of this anime? Why is there um, no more liter- literature on this list? <laughs> yeah. Um, I would say if you were that person, um, you know... Maybe you don't want to start watching anime, but like we might be the podcast to do it with, because um, we're the <laughs> podcast that will do Icelandic literature as well. <laughs> so yeah, um, and uh, right in right into our email, um, request uh, you know request more literature for the question buckets. Yeah, right into ghostdiverspod at gmail dot com and say, hey, I've not listened to any other episode other than your New Year special one about independent people. But um, it was great. I loved it, or whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, so for this for this hypothetical person that we're addressing, uh, I, I I don't think we've finished our introductions yet. 
You are, I did say that you're Connor. My oh, you did? Okay. Connor. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, uh, welcome. Uh, welcome to uh, the first time listener. Welcome to uh, everyone, everyone else. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess we can get right into the, uh, the retrospective. Um, yeah. It's been, it's been quite a year. Yeah, I I will say, we've mentioned this before, but I just want to, like, say it right up here at the front as we're doing this retrospective. Um, I'm surprised at the reception that this podcast has gotten. Um, we have, like, multiple people who are, like, active, engaged fans with the podcast, um, which is already impressive. And then also, like, our, our listener numbers are beyond what I was expecting. I thought we would be getting, like, 30 listens for episodes. Um, I would say ours average a little bit over 100, but, um, I mean, I can actually just, like, pull this up live. There's <laughs> one episode in particular that just has a ton of listens. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly. Um, do, do, do. Is it the um, the end of Eva? Um, no, because that one's up there. I think. Yeah, the end of Eva one is up there. Um, so we've gotten some more with um, Utena, although it has fallen off as the episodes go on, which I think makes sense. Like people might start listening and then, especially, might take time to like listen through and catch up. Um, but uh, let me let me scroll up. Oh, so it's our intro to. Ava that has 358 listens, um, which is our most listened to episode. So people have 358 people have listened to our intro to the podcast for, for Ava. Um, and then approximately half of those have said, no, thanks. <laughs> yeah. That's gotta be a point um, of pride. Honestly, yeah. that intro episode. I, again, like, I think, I, I think I've made this joke to you before, but, um, in retrospect, like that intro episode was basically just us, like looking over at like all of Ava fandom and then just like leveling, leveling the cannons and just being like, yeah, we're, we're just completely not like interested in like this way, this way, and this way of engaging with Ava um, (laughs) or like responding to the fandom whatsoever. Uh, So you know, with that in mind, it, it kind of makes sense that maybe yeah. some people, uh, I think at one point in that we said, like, if you, if you interpret Ava this way, we don't want you to listen to the podcast. Yeah. Um, so that could account for about <laughs> half of the people following off. Um, so, I mean, we did say that, so we can't really complain, yeah. you know, uh, if, if we lost some listeners off of that episode. I, I will say, just looking at the numbers, um, I think our, our Utena listenership has actually been slightly better than the Ava ones. They're pretty comparable. Um, it went down a little bit for Ray Earth, which I understand it's not as big and talked about of a series, but um, oh, once again, say, go listen to our Ray Earth episodes, because I love that anime. Yeah, yeah, I'm really proud of uh, of the work that we did on Ray Earth. Um, mm-hmm. And also, it's just a great, like, really enjoyable anime. Um, yeah. Even if you're not going to listen to the Ghost Divers discussions of it, just go watch it. Because um, it's really it's a fun time. Yeah. Um, it's a very good one, too. If you want one that you can kind of, like, 
watch in the background, like it it stands up to more active engagement, I think, but also it's one that is like far more like you can just eat lunch and watch an episode and you know, like take a break from your your job or whatever. <clears throat> um it can just be an enjoyable time. Um So yeah. Yeah. Um, I think um for me it's it's still a little bit um surreal to think about you know getting hundreds of listens um to our episodes because when we started uh i I think my view on it has always been we do this first and foremost just because we want to do it um we want to have like these discussions about how these series are meaningful for us um we want to do it in this certain way um and who the hell even knows if anyone else is gonna like vibe with this yeah um but you know so the immediate goal like was hey we're just gonna do this for ourselves and then the like bonus goal the thing that i held out as like wow this would be really amazing but i'm not expecting it um would be if like there was anyone out there who really like got something out of it um, and really like enjoyed it uh, and engaged and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And that kind of happened very quickly. uh, So I had to like reassess my whole, (laughs) my whole view of of what we were doing. Um, But I'm still in that same space of like, you know, we do this because like we make this show because it's the show that we want to make. Um, and I'm very proud of it. Like just for that. Um, but as time has gone on, like engaging with the people who, um, who, who really like listen consistently and write in and stuff. Um, seeing like in some instances, what they've gotten out of the show um, and just like the joy that it's given them um, is, is incredibly humbling. uh, And also like um, definitely a feeling that I've never really had before uh, in my life. So um, I'm, I'm extremely grateful for that. Yeah. Um, I, I'm also thankful to the x Audio Network that hosts us. Um, one, it was just made things a lot less daunting to be like, okay, the like they use Pinecast, which basically you can just add as many podcasts as you want to like your account, which means that like we don't have to pay for hosting for this. Um, that's just like included with us being on the network because. Um, doesn't cost them any more money to, to host a friend's podcast. Um, so one is just like, that was a nice thing. It made it less daunting to start because, um, it was no longer like, even if it's like $5, that's still like, okay, I'm like spending $5 every month to do this podcast. Um, and like, I've spent money on this podcast. I, for you all, at the time of this recording, I haven't gotten any yet because we're recording this before Yule, but like I asked for a new mic that will hopefully be a little bit better. Um, so it's not like 
there's nothing that we're we're like putting resource wise in here but it also just helped to be like oh yeah like one we just have hosting um and then two we kind of got a a community of people like not everyone started listening right away um but being able to like be a part of a network means that our stuff can get promote uh, promote on other podcasts um and also like in the abnormal mapping discord which is kind of there's a channel that's like the closest that export audio will ever get to having their own discord um you know that's where we get a lot of i would say like the most regular engagement with um with the podcast in addition to just like the emails for question buckets so um and i feel like that's just like a a thing that's allowed us to to connect with more people so um i'm definitely appreciative of that um yeah and people people Um, can go to exportodd.io to support the network i'll do the little promo here um <laughs> yeah um please please do support export audio um and uh yeah just echoing what you said like uh the hospitality of export audio to um you know to host ghost divers um and also like for me um the the export audio community um to like i guess a larger extent the abnormal mapping community but um Specifically, the Expert Audio Discord um, has been really welcoming. Um, And again, I've I've said this before, but um, it is literally the only place where I post like regularly (laughs) on the internet anywhere Um, for for, like several reasons. Um, And, uh, you know, it's... It's just been a great place, uh, very welcoming, um, and also the discussions there uh, have been really enriching for me uh, personally. Um, so being a part of that community, even um, you know, t- to the extent that I am, um, has been, uh, I would say, an important experience um, yeah. in my life. Uh, so. I'm also very grateful for that. Uh, grateful to everyone in the community. Um, yeah. So thank you all. Yeah. And if you're listening to this and you're not in that discord, I think if you just Google abnormal mapping discord, you can find it if you, if you want to join it. Um, do you check yeah. out the rules? Um, I would say it's a very welcoming community. If you are like not a bigot, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's not welcoming to bigots. So yeah. um, if you're a bigot, hopefully I don't know why you're listening to this podcast either, but um, uh, yeah, that's that's wild that you made it this far. So yeah. I guess congrats in that regard. Um, um yeah, it uh, also twenty four uh, twenty four seven tech support from yeah uh, from Ghost Divers. So you call yeah. in if you have any questions or anything. Um, we have yeah the clock I, support in that Discord. If I fuck up the upload on an episode or something, you can post about it there and i'll fix it i'll see it (laughs) um uh anyway i don't know if i have other big i mean the one big thing that i have i have two things planned and the the first one is we did ranked lists of all the anime that we've watched so far Mm -hmm. um which i figure is just a good way of like looking back at those anime um and it's also slightly tongue-in-cheek because ranking things like this is kind of antithetical to our podcast um and that's why i think it's funny to do (laughs) yeah i think so before we do this 
um, my stipulation for doing rankings because I, I really generally don't like uh, rankings, um, like media ranking lists. That yeah. whole t- that tired trope, um, like we can we can discuss like some of the reasoning why we rank them, uh, but I want to keep it like subjective. I don't want yeah. any like like at least I'm not going to do any of this like desperate like arbitrary posturing like. Yeah. objective justification <laughs> this for is, why this, this is, one is number like this is a 98 and then this one's a 95 and so that's one and that's two like yeah no no like no we're not this doing is that. purely subjective um, yeah i just think i think it why I, I think it's fun to do this is one it will let us i think every year we'll just do all of the series that we've done so the list will continue to grow um and you know, maybe at some point it'll get so long that we need to like do some sort of trimming down of it. Like we'll do like the bottom and the top or something. Um, but yeah. And my, like, my 1,234th <laughs> ranked anime. God, we will have been doing this podcast way too fucking long. If we're getting to that. But, um, but yeah, like at a certain point, if it's like, even if it's like a hundred, which is still, we've been doing this podcast for a really long time. Um, oh, yeah. That's still, I think, going to be, like, not that fun to listen to, and it would be better to just, like, have our list if we do them, um, like, as a thing that people could view as a, you know, work cited or something on the episode, um, and just, like, on the podcast, talk about our bottom and our top ones. Um, but, uh, oh, that, that's another fun thing about this past year, is that you've <laughs> learned what bottoming and topping means. Um, yeah, yeah, that, I, I, I said before, I've learned a lot. Um, yeah <laughs> you know, through this um, podcast but no for me part of the fun of this is the subjective it's just like okay we've talked about this people can listen to our like discussions about it um now let's just do this where we're like doing this objective like okay these are my favorite that we've watched um and just people can see the gaps you know or like the differences between our subjective opinions yeah, it um, was hard. It was really hard, though. Even um, I have a feeling that after... my number one is not going to be your number one. <laughs> oh, your your number one is not O Eight MS Team. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, so okay. Even after dispensing with like any you know pretension, like or fake objectivity, um, it was still that in a way almost made it harder. Um, because yeah. then I just had to ask, like, which, for me, That's the thing. I, if we were doing pure ob- objectivity, I don't know if my number one would be number one. Yeah. But would, also, I think that's a bad way of thinking of us, about it. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> In terms of formal perfection, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Crow High, obviously, is, is unparalleled. Um, look forward to our Cromartie High School manga read-through podcast um, coming next year. <laughs> um, um, do we, do we yeah. want to do our lists? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, let's let's just do them before before uh, we just before talk about I, it before we before do the I thing where we talk about it. the ending. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> before um, I think better of it. So w- we're gonna 
one, I want to start with my dishonorable mention, and then we're going to do like number six up to number one, and we'll just go back and forth. Um, maybe I'll do my dishonorable mention, and then you can do your number six, and I'll do my number six, and then we'll we'll go up that way. Um, does that okay. sound good? Yeah, that works. Um, my dishonorable mention is the Ray Earth OVA. Fuck that that OVA. <laughs> <laughs> you mean you mean Ray Earth? Yeah, Ray just, Earth. Just Ray Earth. Just yeah. Ray Earth. Um, that's good. Six. I didn't realize we were we were taking into the we were taking the peripheral stuff into account. Um, we're not. I just wanted to do a dishonorable mention because of how much I got mad at that OVA. Just to kick some more dirt on that thing's grave. I'm honestly madder about Persona Three Portable, but like, if we open up that can of worms, we're just we're going too deep. So I specifically that's not an anime. One, yeah, I just <laughs> it's kind of an anime, Connor. Well, <laughs> anyway, yeah. it, um. So you, you want to go or you want me to go? Uh, you go with your number six. Okay. Um, huh, that's weird. Uh, I have a list here, but it doesn't it doesn't really make sense. I, I don't know how I came up with this. Um, <laughs> here, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read it off. It's not even numbered. I'm just gonna read it off. Um, so the list what, I have what here. What is this bit? What is this the, bit that you're doing? The list I have here just says it's Fight Club, The Dark Knight, <laughs> Dodgeball, The Matrix, Old School. Have you, you ever seen that movie? Um, and then The Princess Diaries. But I don't know how that one got in there. Um, let me... Oh, okay. Sorry. This was um, this was the list. This was the the bit that we talked about. You remember where we we went back into our MySpace profile and pulled the movie section, <laughs> like your favorite movie section. Yeah, yeah, that classic bit. Yeah, that one got. It, I just mixed them up. So okay, um, but yeah, no, that sorry, that was from that's from um, that's from two thousand eight. Um, <laughs> All right. Uh, still, th- that's still my favorite movies list, though. Um, <laughs> that hasn't changed so, at all. No, not not at all. Um, uh, so yeah, my my last ranked is Eighth MS Team. Um, so it, my number six is also Eighth MS Team. Okay. Um, um, do Do you want to talk about why we have it last? Yeah. So I'll make some general comments um, about my list. Yeah. What it came down to, what it came down to for me is like a couple of factors. Um, the first one was like when I'm looking back on all these anime, um, on all, on all these series, like which of these continues to stick with me? Um, yeah. Which do I find myself like thinking about a lot, just like in my daily life? Um, and continuing to come back to you. Um, the, the other consideration is like, which of these did I feel like um, was most, had like the most depth of engagement for me? Yeah. Um, that I just felt like it was doing so much, or it was so rich and there was so much for me to like, that I was able to find in it and that I continue to find. Um, and then the last one was like, how much did these series like 
really move me um just organically um like how much of these like changed my emotions um Mm -hmm. and made me feel something um so that's kind of i'm not even sure that the order i ended up ranking them in is like a perfect representation of that um but those were more or less like the guidelines in my mind when i um put these together yeah so i think oh eight ms team um i will say none of these like i didn't dislike any of these anime um yeah same i yeah I, we watched them for the podcast for a reason which is that it, like at least i i've seen all of these before we did the podcast and i enjoy all of them <laughs> yeah like they've been pre-selected by like virtue of we think these are anime that we want to spend 12 hours talking about yeah Uh, um so you know none of these are like i didn't dislike any of these um oethms team had a lot of stuff going on that i liked uh but i think that there were ultimately it didn't it didn't really move me like that strongly um and i think there were ways that it could have gone um that would have given me like more to hang on to yeah Um, it's been the one so far of the the anime that we've watched that you haven't seen yet where early on you're hitting on so much stuff that would be really interesting that I just knew it was not going to do. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And for me that like, you know, why I have this last is I do enjoy 08th MS team. um, And it, it holds a special place as like, I think the series of episodes where we like really figured out this show, um, like the Crow High episodes are really good. The, you know, we've talked about like, we're proud of the Ghost Initial episodes, but we can also see how like the fact that we talked so much about the anime before we recorded had an effect on like, I think the, the episode is like a, a listening experience for people. Um, yeah. And also we were both just new to podcasting. You were more new than me. Cause I had like radio hosting experience and had guests on some podcasts before, but like we were still both, pretty new to doing a podcast um and so i feel like that's the one where we were like really finding our feet at all what was ghost in the shell um and crow high was really was fun and i was like kind of trying to prove like can we do this about like a comedy something that we we, yeah and also something that we haven't done like we haven't talked about for 50 hours yeah um but like a big part of me was like you know analyzing comedy is like a, a classically um like can rob the humor of it. And I, I wanted to be like, can we do this? And can we also still have it be like a fun episode? Um, and I think we like did that pretty well with Crow High, but it was really always MS team where I was like, okay, like I understand what this podcast is, right? Like I, I fully understand how this podcast is working. I understand our dynamic. I understand like, and some of it is just the virtue of it being the third one that we did. Um, and some of it was also just like, 
it was fairly short, but we could kind of get this like concise, like, let's do an intro. How are we feeling about it? And then like have a conclusion and, and have a, uh, like conversation where we both are kind of having different takes, but coming to some sort of synthesized, um, like this is the podcast take on it. Um, so I appreciate it for all of that reasons, but also it's just like, it's, it is the anime that I just like the most of even just the show itself just like evaporates from my mind the further away I am from it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. I mean, I, I do think about the ending, uh, mm -hmm. on occasion, uh, because I think that the, the stuff that happens with the ending is, is intriguing and relevant. Um, and, you know, we, we went through it at, at, at length, um, in our episode. So, um, listeners just, you know, if you haven't listened to them, go back. There are great episodes. Um, yeah. and, and you'll, you'll hear what I'm referring to, um, that whole discussion. Um, I think about that a, a fair amount still. Um, but yeah, everything else, I don't like remember it with excitement. Um, yeah. I'm like, oh man, like that scene. Yeah. That. I just remember that OHMS team scene. I'm, oh, that was so great. Like, yeah, you know, since, since we did those episodes, I've gotten into building Gunpla. Um, and just like an illustration of, um, I have not watched Vodums. I was at a, a store in Chicago, um, Nakama Toys, that does like, they sell Gunpla model kits. Um, and I debated very, very briefly between getting the ground Gundam cause they had a ground Gundam there being like, oh yeah, I like, I did always MS team on the podcast. It would be fun to have like a gunpla that I'm building of like an actual series that we've covered on the podcast. Um, and then I looked at the scope dog and one, the scope dog is just a cool design Two, it appears in uh, micro commander commando diatron 5 aka space transformer aka space transformers uh which is one of my favorite like cheap animation things um and so i got the scope dog instead <laughs> um and i just i, I feel that like that's also all. yeah like that's indicative of like i could have like gotten a ground gundam and built it and i just i decided not to because i would rather have a scope dog even though i have not even watched the anime that it's from yet <laughs> um, i plan to but it's also just a great design and people should go watch micro commando diatron five. Um, who knows? Yeah. There might be a bonus episode about it on ornate stairwells at some point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I feel a lot more strongly about our, like our OAth MS team episodes than I do about OAth MS team itself. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, do we want to move on to number five? Yeah. Okay. What's your number five? Okay. So my number five is, Crow High, um, which is blasphemy. This is a section of the list where it's just like, yeah, we're these are all my favorite, like among my favorite anime. <laughs> um, like we're literally doing a pod, a Crow High podcast, so you know, yeah, keep, keep that in mind. Um, given the criteria that I laid out earlier, um, Crow High, like it brings me a tremendous amount of joy, um. It is like one, I think one of, you know, one of the best anime ever, uh, whatever. Um, 
the comedy is amazing. I think like the formal elements are incredibly interesting. Um, but then like what we're stacking it up against, um, it, it makes it hard with, again, with the criteria that I was using, like it makes it very hard to rank Crow High above any of the other series. Like with, you know, Oh, how like, how like emotionally and like intellectually like rich did I find the experience of watching this thing? Like how much did it move me? How much does it stay with me as like a thing that, you know, I remember something from it and it's like, you know, it haunts me for half a day. Um, (laughs) uh, So I I love Crow High dearly. It brings me a tremendous amount of joy, Um, but I couldn't rank it above like these other series um, in good conscience. Yeah. Uh, My number five is Neon Genesis Evangelion. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm sorry if that pains you, but no, no, it doesn't. um, It's okay. I, yeah, believe it or not. I, I, I actually have a pretty good idea of your opinion on Ava at this point. Yeah. I, the thing is, I like Ava a lot. Um, it, it, but it is a, it's a work that's very, it, it has a lot of flaws to me in a way that are like difficult for me to sit with. Um, and I still think it's like, it is like by your criteria, I would probably rate it higher because I, I do think about it. I think m- I actually don't know if this is true. I might think about Crow High more. Crow High for me is just like a thing that I use to like understand and think about comedy. Um, like broadly and what I enjoy in comedy. So like Crow High does hold a very special place for me. Um, so maybe not even by your criteria, I would rank this higher, but um, sure. That's fair. Like Ava, Ava is very important, but I, I feel I feel strongly about it, but I have like, I think a, a greater, um, like I wrestle with it. I think more, more than you do. Um, and also I'm, even though our podcast was just about, um, the show and end of Evangelion, I have watched the rebuild, uh, Ava movies. I know you haven't yet. We'll probably do them on the podcast at some point. Um, because I, I do think it'd be really interesting to talk about them. Um, but I think that's also to some degree coloring how I think about Ava um, because it is like further engaged with the the legacy of Evangelion um, and like has further intensified some of my feelings around especially ending stuff with Ava. But actually like the manga and the show version of Ava remain my favorite. Um, and it, it's really like all of the movies that... Um, are a little bit more fraught for me, but yeah, that was in my number five. Yeah. I was, I was kind of expecting that. Yeah. Um, given our, uh, you know, our many hours of discussion. Um, <laughs> this is kind of like a little promo for any, you know, maybe the, the person who's listening to, uh, to go ciphers for the first time with this episode. Um, I'm, I'm not going to give you anything. I'm not going to like tell you what our conclusions are. You're just gonna have to go back and listen to the, uh, yeah, to to the Ava episodes too now to see what um, we're talking about. Uh, the end of Ava episode was. is still the best like standalone episode of the podcast to me. 
Um, it's the one that like most clearly, uh, you can listen to it if you've watched the, the show and watch the movie. Um, and you don't have to listen to like all the other episodes building up. You can kind of just listen to that one and get like those other episodes are very good, but you can listen to the end of Ava episode and get like a condensed version of our take on Ava, um, in a way that like, I still think it's the best. Like if you're trying to sell this podcast to someone, just be like, have you watched Ava? Have you seen end of Evangelion? Okay. Go listen to this one episode. Um, also, have you read the manga? But <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, uh, agreed. Um, um, do you want to do number four? Yeah. Um, so my number four. So I, I actually, I did like, I had two series tied at number two. So my number four is really my number three, um, and that's Magic Knight Ray Earth. Um. We're I'm not getting surprised into the, by this. <laughs> we're, we're getting into the section of the list where uh, these are series that have like had a significant influence on me, either like emotionally or intellectually. Um, series that have like changed me like to some degree as a person, um, and I think the experience of not only the first time I watched Ray Earth, um, but also watching it again, like for a second time, um, both of those experiences were, um, were, were important for me. Um, I remember watching Ray Earth, like for the first time, um, and being in like, being in a place where, um, and I, I didn't even talk about this on our Ray Earth episodes um, too much, I don't think. Um, but being in a place where I was really struggling with, like, my identity and my self-image. Um, and Ray Earth was a ground where I, like, worked out with some difficulty um some of those issues um in a way that was like not always joyful um and not always pleasant uh but also like it necessary um so it, it gave me like a good uh a world and characters and like a platform to think about this stuff that was going on with myself um, and to go through like a process of being like, Oh, like, yeah. Like Lantis, like I really identify with Lantis, like, because he's just like, I love the fact that he just like never talks and like, doesn't speak to anyone really. And is just completely closed off. Um, And, like, that's that's how I should be. Like, that's, oh, that, that's perfect. That's, like, how I want to be. Um, and then also, like, you know, having to be, like, wait, why do I think that's good? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, like, is, wait, why, is that really a good idea? Um, 
And is that like, is this show, what is this show telling me like about being about doing that? Um, and like, you know, eventually coming to a very different conclusion, um, but just having that organic response and then having to like confront that and be like, Oh, wow. Um, it's weird that I'm like attracted to this and having this, uh, <laughs> this thought. Um, yeah. And then by the same token, like, you know, having some extreme responses of like disgust to like certain characters like Furio, um, just being like, yeah, Furio is like, you know, just this like useless, like straight guy, um, and completely is, uh, like he just disgusts me. Um, because of how, like, you know, how useless and, like, ineffectual and also, like, you know, comparatively disingenuous he is. Um, and then, you know, working through that, (laughs) um, over the course of, you know, even into, like, our, you know, our actual discussion episodes, um, so anyway, you know, long like rant, um, but uh, it's a show that has had a lot of personal significance for me, as I know it has for you, um, and also like something that, like you said earlier, stands up to critical scrutiny and has a a lot of richness um, that warrants that opens up a lot of really important discussions. Um, and I think it's, that's something that is probably not given credit for and is not, um, you know, really obvious at face value. Um, and, and I appreciate like, I, that's the thing that I really appreciate about it as well. Yeah. Um, my number four is Sakigake Kromarty high school. Um, not too surprising that I, you know, I have it one above you, but um, these other ones are ones that are like, I do think about more deeply. Um, but also, like I said before, Cromarty High School is like, I I think about humor through the lens of Crow High. Um, and like, I do think that Utena actually does share like important similarities in terms of how it handles the humor stuff. Um, but also like, I, I'm kind of aware as I was talking about that in the, the Utena episodes that like, I'm also coming at this from the way that I conceive of comedy is through this, like my favorite comedy is Cromartie high school. This is like the lens that I use to view and understand this work. Um, and so like comedy broadly. Um, and so it is like, I, I want to give some value to comedy, even as like, I think drama is often, um, valued more. Uh, and, and that like Kermarty high school is such a, um, impressive work and also a, a lasting work for me. Um, you know, yeah. one of the things I was thinking about when I was doing this list is, um, I have, you know, three other anime ranked above this. Um, only one of those have I used as like 
profile art for myself. And actually, Ava, which I put below, I, I have an account where I have Misato as my, like, profile <laughs> picture. Um, like, mm-hmm. I do identify a lot with, with Misato um, in, in complex ways. But, um, so, like, and that, mad- like, there is a long period of time before I came out as trans where Kamiyama from the first cover of the manga, um, where it's like the, the orange on yellow, uh, was just my, my profile picture on like basically everything. Um, because Cromartie high school just meant a lot to me. Um, and it still does. And it's still this, it is this work. Like, you know, I, I told, we told the story on the podcast, but like, one of the there's a part where I was like, okay, I'm gonna show you Cromartie High School because like watching Crow High with someone and being like, are you responding to this in the same way I am? Like tells me something about our humor styles matching or not. Absolutely. <laughs> um. So yeah, and like I I think about the way that Cromartie High School plays at like Manzai as this very traditional formulaic like method of doing comedy um and does interesting things with it and how that like intersects with the way that like conversations and things like so much of crow high is is hitting at this manzai thing of misunderstanding and confusion and like the humor of people misunderstanding each other um and so there's also a certain amount of like i do think about cromarty high school sometimes when i've just gone through like a stressful situation that was based around misunderstanding and then i think about the like funny crow high version of that <laughs> as like a way to like process a thing that was stressful to me so yeah, yeah. I, I love Cromartie high school a lot and again i mean the podcast coming next year is or i guess this year as people are listening to this um coming in 2022 is us going through the manga it's also just a hangout podcast but like we both love crow high a lot <laughs> yeah um those are some really good points that uh yeah I wish I had considered when I was making my list, although I don't know if it would have, it, it, it would have been hard to, it would have been hard to change it, but you're right that like every time I think about comedy now, pretty much I think of Crow High. Um, and yeah, it, it has transformed my like thinking on comedy as such c- completely. Um, yeah. so <laughs> that's a very good point that, uh, I, I don't, I don't know if I gave enough weight to, um, the li- next year, maybe our list rankings will be different. We'll see. Did you, so you said that your number two and your number three are tied. Basically. Uh, yes. Yeah. Do you want me to do my number three then? And then you can do both of yours together and then we'll kind of return to you doing first me doing second. Yeah, that works. Okay, just so you can, like, talk about them uh, together. So my number three is Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex. Um, a, a anime that I think on the intro to that I described as my favorite anime. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. um, Which it may have been at the time. Yeah. Um, I love Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex a lot. It's, like the podcast is kind of named after it for a reason. Uh, it's the first series that we did for a reason. Um, that first like season in particular is just an incredible season of anime. Um, it's one of the best like police procedural things that I've ever watched. Um, 
it is it does a really good job of being like very entertaining and engaging and doing the like this is the the case of the week um but then also tying it into overarching themes it does a like excellent job of rolling out um world building and themes and then developing on them um honestly like the the two anime that i ranked above this might be more flawed uh if i was doing like trying to be objective here i would probably have ghost in the shell standalone complex at the top um some of this is at the time that we are recording this we are starting watching through second gig um i have more complex feelings around second gig and i having them now having watched it more recently, like as we were finishing up ghost in the shell standalone complex episodes, um, has in some ways colored my, my opinion on the series as a whole, um, in a, in a way that's like definitely creeping in here. Um, and then it's also a thing of like, I love that anime so much. It's one of the, the first anime that like really made me be like, wow, shit anime. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. But also, it's just the the two above, which, you know, if you're following along, Aritana and Ray Earth, um, <laughs> those are, are, like, I think those are series that have spoken to me more personally. And so that's, like, why they're above, um, is that there's, like, this, this very personal thing that's happening with them. Um, and as I'm, like, ranking just, like, my favorite, like, you know anime that we've done in this podcast like that that personal connection that i have um is i think winning out for me at least in this moment so that's my number three what's your number what's your number two and three tied yeah, so i two a and two b um are ava and utena um, okay i'll talk about utena first um, can, can i say one quick thing as you then before you go into this um, <laughs> yeah. which is that I've been doing a weighted ranking based on the the ranking that we're doing um, in terms of how to place this. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what am I going to do for the points that I'm giving for Utena and um, Ava? The two that like you still have to rank. Um, and I, not knowing that Utena was necessarily going to be the one that's tied here, I, um, I texted autumn being like as the unofficial like third host of ghost divers what's your favorite anime that we've covered that you've watched um and they said utena so i'm going to give utena the the two points and uh ava the three points in terms of ranking to like decide this tie um okay in terms of the like overall ranking for ghost divers but yeah um okay that's fair enough you're the uh you're the official scorekeeper, so um, yeah, <laughs> I, I won't I won't dispute it. Um, Utena is so obviously I just watched it for the first time. Um, yeah, on Ghost Divers. Um, but first of all, um, the amount of just stuff going on in that series is mind-boggling um and i've gotten a tremendous amount of pleasure just like turning that over in my mind 
<laughs> like ever since we watched it, I can always, um, you know, if I'm like at work or if I'm bored or something, if I'm like out driving somewhere, I just start thinking about Utena and I just like let my mind circle around like, you know, this aspect or that aspect um, for a little while. And it just never stops um, intriguing me um, with like, not only, you know, the formal construction of the show, um, all of the formal elements that are brought into play, um, the like interplay between the various themes and how they're developed. Um, but also like the, um, the mystery of the show and the persistence of that mystery, um, in the significance of of it being a mystery and of the mystery as such um is is endlessly uh just like fun for me to think about um it's also a show that i'm i'm very impressed with <laughs> um the fact that it has like that it contains within itself um, not only this um, uh, not only a a great deal of tenderness um, and insight um, and just enrich characterization um, and empathy that it can go from that to like crow high um and does like back and forth um it contains this this ridiculously wide tonal range um and not even just for the sake of having it um but like it's all um this this like range of elements is not only impressive in its like width but also in the fact that it all like coheres um yeah and it's all still meaningful um for like you know the critical and intellectual realization of some of the themes um but also it's meaningful in like an empathetic way um where that that helps you connect with the characters um and understand them uh and then that connection in turn like is is very revealing um so it's something that I, I, I haven't sat with it for a very long time because it's only been, you know, a few months now. Um, but since we started watching it, it's it's really stuck with me and I, I think about it a lot. Um, and then Ava, um, you know, we talked for 20 hours about Ava. <laughs> um, it's a show that's meant a lot to me. Um, it means more to me now after we did our our episodes on it um i realized why i had such a strong response to it um when i first saw it you know now i'm able to articulate that more to myself um and the process of working out my thoughts on it 
Um, and then being able to articulate that, like to myself, um, was it, it was important for me, um, on a personal level. Um, I also think from just from a podcast perspective, the Ava episodes of ghost divers, um, were like the hardest episodes I've ever had to, uh, that, that we've ever done. Um, it was, there were a lot of growing pains, uh, for me, like as a podcaster doing those episodes, um, around, you know, not only like creative anxiety, um, but also, you know, engaging with some of these themes, engaging with, um, the community, uh, around this show and around these themes, um, there was a lot of, uh, like self-doubt, um, and, and art artistic, like self-questioning, um, that I had to do. Um, stacked yeah. on top of like this bubbling, you know, tension around, you know, my own like the events in my own life that really strongly color how I read Ava and me responding to that as well. Um, so it was just kind of yeah. this like mix of really strong emotions. Um, it was it was very difficult, um, but in a good way. And I'm glad, like, I'm really glad that it transpired the way it did. Um, because, again, the, it, I think it, I feel that it was like an important moment um, for this podcast, at least for me, like, to confront some of that and to have to work through it. Yeah. Um,. My number two is Revolutionary Girl Utena. Um, this is a show that um, I had watched a long time ago and uh, revisited a little bit of in preparation for the podcast. And I think it just hit me a lot harder um, this time than, than when I first watched it. Um, and I think some of this is just having come out as trans, like in the intervening years um, and having this like different feeling around the, the sexuality and gender and everything that's happening in the show um, that I, w I was like definitely noticing, but didn't have as um, I guess like intimate of feelings around. Um, but yeah, it, it, like I was kind of surprised at how much it rocketed up this list. Um, because if I had made this list, you know, before we did Utena, I don't think it would have been this high. Um, and some of this might be recency, who knows, maybe we'll, we'll do this next year and <laughs> it'll be lower on the list. Um, but yeah, I love Utena a lot. And, uh, also, every time that we record this podcast, I stare at a poster of Andrea <laughs> Nutena <laughs> um, laying in a bed of roses. So uh, <laughs> that's also just part of 
ghost divers now. <laughs> um, we all know what your number one is now, yep. but you can still say it. <laughs> yeah, it's Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex. Um, the podcast is named after it. Uh, it's. I'll try to keep this short because I think I probably rambled with the other ones. Um, I'll start with the critique, which is there are some ways that standalone complex is very cold. Um, yeah. And it, you know, watching it, it, you feel that, um, and it doesn't really, it doesn't give me the same feeling that like, I mean, obviously not Crow High, but, um, that rare Earth or Utena, um, or even Ava gives me of just that strong, um, emotional response. But, um, I think that that's important, uh, for, for what the show is and all the other things that it does. Um, and, uh, more importantly, I do think that there is like warmth and humanity, um, in the show and that like the fact that it exists under this coldness, um, is, is important. Um, it's also the show that I probably think about most often, um, that frames up so many of the issues that, you know, if that we're, we're probably going to experience like in our lifetime. Um, yeah. And like so many of the issues that are, you know, not only emerging now in human society, um, but that will come to define like the next stage of, you know, what we're entering into. Um, and that's a very, uh, thinking about that stuff, um, can be like very, uh, fearful, <laughs> uh, and overwhelming. Um, and I think standalone complex is a series that like does not, uh, it, at, at the same time that it does not like sugarcoat any of that, um, or like, you know, it doesn't sugarcoat, but it doesn't like uncritically, you know, just like disasterize everything. Um, it, I think has a very like perceptive, um, and grounded, uh, engagement with all these things that, you know, are, are coming to pass right now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for that reason, I, I'm often going back to it. Um, and that's why it ended up as number one. Um, people can look forward to upcoming our lengthy Ghost in the Shell series, where we will do um, the movie Ghost in the Shell 2 Innocence, and the movie being the original Ghost in the Shell by Oshi, um, and Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex second gig, 
Um, and Solid State Society. So that's coming after Utena. Um, people probably know my pick here, which is my number one, which is Magic Knight Ray Earth. Um, this is one that, like, is funny to me because a lot of these anime, like, again, like, if I was trying to be objective, I really don't know if I would put Ray Earth at the top. Um, but it just is a series that means a lot to me. I mean, we get into it on those podcasts, but, um, I guess the, the short of it to like be brief here. Um, I will joke that I'm Misato. I did that throughout the Ava episodes. Um, that is far more of like, like there's some truth in it, but there's far more like me joking around there. Um, when I say that I am Hikaru and Nova, um, that it, that is a like far more, just direct these characters speak really directly to me of like experience that I have. Um, it is for me. And like, maybe this is, is giving away too much of stuff that we talk about in there. But for me, Ray earth is one of the few series that I've seen that it has talked about um, struggles that I've had around like self-harm and depression and like suicidality um, and that does it with such warmth and humanity while also I, I think not trying to just like sugarcoat things um, that it is just extremely powerful and meaningful to me and it's like you know if people go and look right now on Fox Mom Nia on Twitter, it's probably like Hikaru with the Santa hat on because it's still Yule if you're listening to this on January 1st. Um, like, <laughs> this is... I, so, uh, a friend... I will actually play the audio clip here because I think it will be funny. I consider there's a 25th anniversary manga box set um that's hardcover and it's like a hundred dollars for ray earth and then another hundred dollars for ray earth do and um i love this manga a lot that's way too fucking much to spend on ray earth um, <laughs> <laughs> like don't spend that much money on a manga honestly um unless you like yeah. unless it's like i can't live without it you know like- yeah the omnibus is, is a good version, and I'm glad that I have it. Um, so, oh, the box set is the uh, new uh, Kadansha um, hardcover. Okay. Oh, okay. This is in print. Kadansha did the did. Wait, so this is the one that you you did buy? Autumn. I bought digital versions of. Okay, that uh, are a hundred dollars. I was yes. about to laugh really hard if like. Yes. You bought the one that we were just telling people not to buy. I just, it's <laughs> listed separately on Kadansha's website. To, so I thought that um, they just didn't do it. <laughs> yeah. I I would say um, buy, buy the digital version if you want to read it that way, unless you like extremely need a hardcover version of this manga. But I love Ray Earth a lot. The Omnibus is fine for a physical copy. I did buy the last copy each from a website that I went to, but I'm sure you can still find it. Um. Now, three months from now, Nia, we're all going to wake up one morning to a ASMR unboxing video of (laughs) the the hard copy box set Ray Earth from from Nia. And we're all just going to be like, okay, yeah. That checks out. $200 to waste on 
like ray earth stuff i would buy the like currently unavailable and so you have to buy like ones that people saved and are reselling um the figmas of the the magic knights because i want a figma of the hikaru figma you can give her cat ears i mean come on (laughs) (laughs) but it's like a hundred dollars for for her so um yeah if anyone wants to get me an expensive birthday present or something (laughs) (laughs) um anyway So do you remember when we were talking about the Ray Earth manga and I, you know, Autumn read uh, some of it, like the the digital version, and I was like, I got the Omnibus version. It's not as good as the like big collect, like, you know, box set collection for the manga. Uh-huh. Um, but like, that's way too much money to spend on um, on manga. And then you were like, wait for later when we have to do a correction that you now own the, the box set. Uh Um, I did not spend the money. Uh, a friend of mine got it for me as a gift, but I, I now have both of those box sets (laughs) (laughs) and they're, they are incredible. Um, and I'm like ecstatic to have it. And, uh, autumn was over to record, uh, ornate stairwells and i was like oh do you want to like check out these because they're just really nice prints um like the the print quality on it is excellent um so and we were just like sitting and looking at it and they were also like when i was watching the show there was just st- stuff where i was like oh can like we speed this up like i don't really care about this episode i don't really care about what's like going on with this arc even um and now like they're looking at the the um they're like books of illustrations in each box as well. So there's like three that are the actual manga and then like a, a illustration book that's like promo art and things like that. Um and they were just looking at like some of the promo art and they were like I I like had all those things that I talked about on Ghost Divers and now I'm just looking at art of like Hikaru, Umi and Fu and I'm like it's the girls like I want to I want to spend more time with the girls yeah. and I I have like a very similar feeling of just like when I'm watching the anime I don't think I even like it as much as I like just like thinking about the anime like the images of it um like having it like it it being a thing in my head I think about Ray Earth more than any other anime that we've covered. Um, and I just, I love it very deeply, even as like, again, I don't know if, I think it is probably one of the most flawed of the ones that I've ranked highly. And yet still I like deeply, deeply love it um, and connect with it really deeply. So number one, um, do you want me to run through the official weighted between both of us? Yeah. List? Yeah. Let's do it. What, what do you okay. think you would have? Yeah, so we're going to start at the bottom and then work up. So uh, number six, Mobile Suit Gundam, the 08th MS team. Unsurprising. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, number five, Cromartie High School. Uh, number three, or number four, uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion. Number three, Magic Knight Ray Earth. Number two, Revolutionary Girl Utena. And then number one, Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex. Wow. How poetic. Yeah. After everything, Ghost in the Shell uh, still is ranked number one in the the podcast that it, it christened. Yeah. Um, 
Um, I will say between Ghost in the Shell standalone complex, Revolutionary Girl, Utena, and Magic Knight Ray Earth in particular, uh, it is like basically it is uh, Autumn saying that their favorite is Utena that is placing it in between Ray Earth and Ghost in the Shell here. Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, just to like in terms of that's also sort of deciding this tie. Here. So Ray Earth was almost so. number two. Yeah, Ray Earth was almost number two. Um, also, like, Utana was almost number one. Like, they are all so close. Yeah, it's true. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, it would be more clear if you had had, like, a clear... But if you had done Utana as number two and Ava as number three, like, that's how I did the, the tie break with... Um, autumn and like autumn's thing and then it put ghost in the shell and utena like both at four points as like the lowest number of points i.e ranked the highest um but since there was that tie there i then gave it to ghost in the shell because that was like your number one utena was my you know anyway yeah, yeah i did i i did the the other thing i was like if i had just given both uh ava and utena 2.5 instead of like two and three, then Utena would be 4.5 and then would thus be right in the middle between five and, and four. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Well, there you have it, folks. That is our official ranking. Um, wow. As much as we, uh, as much as we hate rankings, we, we spent a lot of time doing that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's, it's also speaking, retrospective, you know? Yeah. Speaking of hating doing rankings and spending time doing it, I have a secret thing planned, which is we are going to do a, a tournament of the OPs for the anime that we've watched this year. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, I will say, since it's OPs from anime that we've watched this year, uh, Ray Earth has a, an outsized um, Ray, representation. It's a bye week. Yeah, because it because it has well, it has three OPs, and I they are all separate because we're doing OPs, not anime. Oh, okay. Um, so I I did so it's six anime, but it comes out to eight OPs because um, you know, there there are three for Ray Earth. Um, I did a completely random seed order. Um, I didn't try and predict what we would rank stuff as, and like, you know, do that kind of seeding. I just. I put them all into a randomizer. Um, the like tournament thing I did allowed me to just do a, a random seeding. Um, so our first bracket here, um, a cruel angel's thesis mm -hmm. from Ava by Takahashi Yoko or June from grow high by Yoshido Takaro. Um, so for these brackets, I want to, if we both agree, no more discussion, we just immediately put that in and move on. Uh, if we disagree, we can try and convince each other. Okay. I'm going to say June Crow High. Yeah. You, you agree? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, moving on. Uh, so in the second bracket, uh, we have Hikari to Kage o uh, Dakishimeta Mama, which is by Tamuro uh naomi it's the the third op from ray earth um and then the other one is rondo revolution by okui masami from utena 
Utena. Yeah, I'm going to say Utena here. I really love that third OP from, from Ray Earth, but um, I think Utena gets it here. Yeah, um, definitely. Next bracket, we have Rashi no Naka uh, de Kagayaite by Yonekura Chihiro, which is the 08th MS team uh, OP. And then uh, Yuzuranai Nagai by uh, Timuro Naomi, the, the first OP from Ray Earth. I'm saying Ray, Ray Earth, Earth here. Yeah. That's, um, that one is... I don't even remember the 08th one. I, I, all I'm, the rest of these I have in my head, I don't remember that one. I vaguely remember it, but I mean, that the first, the first uh, theme for Ray Earth is going to be very tough to beat. Yeah. It's one of my favorite OPs. The, the, um, third OP from Ray Earth for the, the last, I also grew on me a lot. Um, but I, I still think I prefer the original one more. Um, and then the final bracket for this first round is Inner Universe by Ariga uh, from Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex or Kirai ni uh, Naranai by um, me. The thing is, it's I tough. feel like I'm saying these really weird because I have to slowly uh, scroll because of the way that this fits into the bracket. Uh, but my Nakamura Ayumi, which is uh, the second Ray Earth one. That's this tough. is Ghost in the Shell. The Ghost in the Shell, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, why did that delete? Anyway, um, I'm going to have to type this in. Uh, Inner Universe by Ariga. Thankfully, I, I just know this one, which is... Uh, as they see okay so second round we have crow high june or the utena theme rondo revolution i'm gonna say crow high here i have to i have to agree um okay as much as i love the like rondo revolution is a really good op this is this is kind of hard for me but yeah it is i i love the like the, the great thing before we eliminate it, eliminate it um, the thing that I enjoy most about that theme is the way that it, like, it comes out with this, like, very Saint Etienne, uh, like, dance pop sound yeah. um, that is, like, very unexpected that... Like I, I've seen a fair, my fair share of anime at, at this point, um, and I've never really heard a theme quite like that um, with that sound, which is very in keeping with like just the like really unexpected and cool things that Utena does with its soundtrack. Um, so I love that song, but Crow High has to go through. Yeah. Um, and then the, the other bracket here for round two is the first Ray Earth OP or, uh, the standalone complex OP. Ray Earth. I'm also saying Ray Earth. We are more agreed on this than I was expecting us to necessarily. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Um, I'm surprised. I don't think we've disagreed yet. Um, yeah. The ghost in the shell theme is, is amazing. Um, I, it, it, it fits the show really well. It, it does. Um, um, and it's like, it often just like enters into my brain randomly um, when I'm out and about. 
um it's it's a great great theme um yeah the first rare theme is is better yeah um this is the one that is the absolute hardest for me i was kind of hoping that one of these would maybe get knocked out you would like convince me Mm -mm. um and then it would be easy in this final one because now it's my two babies up against each other <laughs> so we have june the theme for crow high or uh yuzura and i the uh nagai the the theme f- the first op for ray earth um it's ray earth oh i i almost want to say june i'm happy giving this to ray earth if you feel confident in that it's it's hard because they both just like they just they both just feel fill you with this like they they just put a smile on your face like yeah when of that guitar of... rips in that in the rare theme that like yeah. fucking like heart esque guitar lick uh <laughs> like you it just mm, it's really good um. And also, the, cr- the the music video for it is incredible, <laughs> um, where it's just, uh, um, oh, what's her name? This is so, uh, Tamara no- Naomi, um, just like her, like dancing in a studio, basically. <laughs> uh, we get like these like black and white shots of like the the levels on the sound mixer, just like moving up without anyone touching them, like the little like sliders and everything. It's great. It's fantastic. I absolutely love it. Um, yeah, but on the other hand, the Crow High theme is so perfect for the show. Like not, it also just makes you smile, but it fills you with this sense of mirth and like, and, and just like, well, lightness and goodwill that is, it is, it just puts you in the exact like headspace for what Crow High is. It has this like perfect thing too of, um, at once feeling very out of place for a comedy anime. <laughs> um, like it is like this, like rousing ballad about like, uh, trying to be like a true upstanding human being. And in being this like serious rousing ballad of a song, um, it becomes perfect for the comedy that is Crow High. And that's why it's so incredible for the theme for Crow High. Okay. I might be um, reversing my, I might have to go with Crow High now. <laughs> actually this is so hard for me um so the the thing is both of these are the ones that uh ever since phones have let you have like mp3s that you can listen to that aren't like bad midi sound like you can like have headphones plugged into like since like the first iphones basically um i have always had both of these songs on there so i can listen to it at any like a moment's <laughs> notice if i need to mm-hmm. um and i still do this even though i can now look up like a youtube video of them i still have them on my phone in like the, the apple music app yeah <laughs> um i had set as my ringtone even before this was the case i had june from uh crow high as my ringtone if anyone called me on my old flip phone um, I like made my own ringtone of it. <laughs> um, That's a good idea. I so, might go do that now. Yeah. Um, God, this is so hard for me. I, I will let you decide this because 
Like, yeah, Crow High. We have to give Crow okay. High the win in this category. Um, yeah. Because it, it... It wasn't, like... If I was in another frame of mind when we did our other ranking, Crow High could have been one. So, yeah. you know, we're going to... We're going to give Crow High the win here. Yeah.
I feel okay about that. I'm glad that my my two babies made it to the end. <laughs> I think our I think our top two and our top four were like exactly correct. Yeah, um, and then the the like you know the final is is a toss up that you could go either way. Yeah. Um. All right. Do we want to finally get into independent people? Yeah. Also, this is shaping up to actually be a really odd episode. <laughs> <laughs> Like, oh, okay, yeah, now let's talk about this, like, you know, literary masterpiece that is just incredibly bleak um, (laughs) and about, like, you know, Icelandic history. Um, Yeah. Yeah, let's do it.
Independent people. <laughs> um, do you, do you want me to start with like background on? Um, I have a little bit about Locksmith, but I kind of want to give broader background on like history and specifically as it relates to Icelandic literature. Um, but I don't know if you have like immediate things you want to say. Yeah. So, as far as why we chose independent people, um, this is a book that you've loved for a long time, um, and yeah. I know you'll talk about that. Um, it's also a book that like, you know, this podcast, as we've discussed before, is so rooted in like us and our friendship and like, and us becoming friends. Um, and independent people is one of the things that you like gave to me and that we bonded over. Um, and have like since it has continued to be like a reference point and a point of discussion for us over the years. Um, it's, it's a book that I think is, um, it, you know, it's, it's come to mean, uh, it's come to be like meaningful for me over the years as well. Um, but kind of like standalone complex. It's one of those things that we just like shared uh, or like, you know, like crow high as well, where I think, you know, you introduced me to it and then, you know, I responded to it in such a way that like it, like having that thing, it, it connected us. Um, so that's why we're choosing it. Um, it's also the, the single literary work that we've probably referenced the most on the podcast up to this point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And as funny as it would be to have it just continue to be a running joke of like <laughs> an obscure re- reference that we never explain. Um, it was even funnier to just like make a holiday special for the express purpose of discussing it. Yeah. Um, so that's I think that's my main intro comment before we get into yeah. the actual meat of it. Um I'm gonna do the history first and then we'll get into like themes and, and discussion of the actual book. Um I will say at the top to a thing here. Um so I was talking to friend of the pod, Shuo, who did write in an email as well. Um and he was commenting on the fact that like 
the timing, which is like mostly incidental on our part of doing this, like while the Utena episodes are coming out is so perfect because there's actually like a surprising amount of parallels um, that could be drawn from like independent people to Utena, I think um, in terms of like, you know, interest in like sexuality that's developing um, interest in like the history and the like, uh, relation that people have with like a mythic past. Um, all of this stuff is like huge in, in independent people as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, cycles of abuse and um, yeah, etc. Um, but yeah, so I I will start with like a little bit about Huddle Door Locksmith, but I'm gonna bring this up more as I talk about like his books. Um, but I want to just say, like, at the top here, uh, so he was born uh, the 23rd of April, 1902, and then died the 8th of February, 1998, um, when I was 10. Um, and you were significantly younger than that. Um, <laughs> I don't know about significantly, but... <laughs> you you are a bit younger than that. Yeah. Than 10. You were enough that at the age of me being 10, it was a significant difference and no longer is a significant difference. Okay. That's fair. um, I'm not going to run through, like people can just look up Wikipedia and, um, you know, look at all of the books. I did put it here as just kind of a reference point uh, for me in particular, if I want to try and like situate some of this as we're talking later on. Um, but I, I guess I will just say, um, so in terms of novels, uh, he had published four before Independent People. So Independent People was his fifth novel. Um, both Independent People and the, the one novel he did before at Salka Volka were, were um, published as two books each. Um, and then his book after Independent People, World Light, was four separate books uh, published over, um, it was like one a year. This is kind of just like how a lot of stuff was published at the time. Um, if it was a longer work, it was often broken up. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I want to like do some context here. Um, a lot of this I am pulling from, not all of this, but um, I just want to like do a big work cited here. Uh, so there's a book called A History of Icelandic Literature that was uh, edited by Daisy um, I believe Neiman would be how, or Nyman might be how you say her name. Um, and, uh, in particular, there's a, a chapter on it, Realism and Revolt Between the World Wars by Jon Ingvi Jonsson, which really deals with the period of time when, like, independent people came out, um, and, and sort of what led up to it. Um, but, you know, I... For the initial reference point I'm going to give here as I go through the history. Also, Connor, feel free to, like, jump in if you want to react to stuff as I'm going, because I do have a fair amount of, like, history to get through. <laughs> so um, if you have thoughts as I'm going, feel free to, to talk. Yeah, sure. Um, but I want to do, like, as a, a very, like, significant reference point is the Icelandic sagas, which were written in the 13th and 14th centuries. Um, and for a long time, like held primacy, uh, as the literary works in, uh, Iceland, obviously other stuff was being done. And if you like get this, a history of Icelandic literature, um, this is a very lengthy history and there's a lot more to talk about even beyond this, these works written, you know, in the 13th and 14th centuries, um, between then and like what I'm really going to get to. Uh, so I don't want to be like, 
the sagas were written in the 13th and 14th centuries, and then we jump to 1874, <laughs> and nothing of note happened in between. There are entire chapters of this book that are getting into things that happened in between. But I don't want to do like an exhaustive summary of um, Icelandic literature. Uh, but it's important to like note that this history in Iceland is traced back to the sagas. Um, and also the way that the sagas are thought about and discussed remain important all the way up until, I mean, honestly, still today. Um, but for many people, Hadalor Laxness is one of the first people, uh, one of the first authors who like finally... Um, challenges and perhaps even like deceits uh the Icelandic sagas as like the masterpieces of Icelandic literature in a way that like everything that happened in between like nothing ever really fully unseated the sagas as like this thing that people are looking to as like this is the pinnacle of our literature um and I'm talking very broadly about like the way that the stuff is understood. Obviously, there's lots of discussion and, and critique to be had um, throughout the the decades. Um, but I do want to jump to like kind of what was happening before Lachsnes really hit the scene, which was this period of neo-romanticism um, that was happening in. Uh, so the the dates given here, um, and these dates are arbitrary in terms of like literary development because the this neo-romanticism honestly probably started earlier um and also continued after 1918 um was actually still continuing like while Locksness was was doing independent people um but in terms of like the way that um a lot of studies of Icelandic literature, this is the period given and it's given for um actual like political historical reasons, which is that in uh, 1874, King Christian IX issued a new constitution that granted Iceland legislative power. Um, and so this is sort of the very beginning of um, this, this modern independence movement that occurs in Iceland. This, this desire to become free from um, the like Norwegian and then Danish crown. Um, so, you know, starting with King Christian the ninth was when this was, was granted. Um, and of course you can like that started when the sagas were being written. Um, and part of what's happening in this neo-romanticism period is a way of interpreting the, the Icelandic sagas is really becoming emphasized as, um, the Icelandic sagas before then were often really viewed as this personifies the, the national spirit of Iceland. And it is because we Icelanders are these great saga warriors who are written about in these sagas who are like historical, like the sagas are historical documents. Um, and it's talking about our ancestors and we are great. And our nation is great because we trace our lineage back to these people being talked about in the sagas. What's happening during this neo-romanticism period is this shift um, in like the way that the stuff is being positioned in terms of um, this independence push in particular towards, in fact, the reason why like the national spirit is so great is because it's personified by the, by the authors who wrote the sagas. Um, this is where you really start getting this origin of this idea of the Icelandic saga as the proto novel. Um, you really start getting developed these theories around the Icelandic sagas as being novels that are being written about how Iceland's ended up subjecting itself to the, the Norwegian Danish 
um, like kingdom and, and giving up their sovereignty, like giving up their independence because of the blood feuds that the sagas are talking about. Um, and that the, the writers then are, are thinking about like what has been lost. Um, and so what's happening now is this like positioning, not of the, the warriors or the warrior poets in the sagas as the, the national heroes, but the unnamed authors of the sagas themselves become the national heroes. Um, this neoromanticism is also kind of uh, captured by what's happening in other parts of uh, like Nordic and Scandinavian writing. Um, and a really important work here, just uh, to think about also in terms of us thinking about independent people, is this book, um, Growth of the Soil, which was a Norwegian new realism novel um, by Knut Hamsen, who's like one of the great authors of Norway. Um, and this really significantly influenced or at least solidified Icelandic thinking about the Icelandic farmstead. Um, in fact, this term got coined Hamsonism, um, that kind of talks about this way of thinking about, and it's specifically like growth of the soils about a farmer who, who tends to a farm and is like really striving against the elements and against, uh, you know, fate and everything to like try to be this self-sufficient farmer um you can see how this relates to independent people if you've read independent people right connor Um, (laughs) yeah maybe a little bit and really like it i think of this is kind of jumping the gun to some extent but like i think independent people is actually being critical of the way that like growth of the soil is talking about the farmer um and it's talking about this like pastoral existence um, the reason why this neoromanticism period is said to end in 1918 is that on December 1st, 1918, Iceland gained sovereignty from the Danish king. Uh, this happens during World War One, uh, sort of at the end of World War One. Um, this actually gets briefly talked about in Independent People, the novel. Um, and it happens under the Danish Icelandic Act of Union, which granted independence from Denmark, but under the like specificity that they are two nations maintaining a personal union. And so the king of Denmark would then also be the king of Iceland. Um, I'm going to uh, pull up a little bit here just to uh, like quote from this book. So th- this part is actually a translation um, from an Icelandic text. Uh, which the name of the the text would translate to modern Icelandic literature. It was written in uh, 1949, and so it was covering the period of 1918 to 1948. Um, And uh, Tristan E. Andresen writes, None of the literary currents that emerged and flourished in Europe during and after the war reached us at home. Surrealism, Expressionism, uh, Neue Sachlichkeit, etc., Uh, are known to us only from foreign literature. In Iceland, we find no post-war literature worthy of the name. Nonetheless, a natural change of epochs takes place in Icelandic literature at the end of the First World War. In 1918, a certain phase of the evolution of Icelandic political history comes to an end. After a hundred years of uninterrupted struggle for independence, the nation at last had its sovereignty acknowledged. This struggle had given the nation as a whole a goal to strive for and had put its mark on all aspects of life. Now victory had been achieved earlier even than the Icelanders had anticipated and with less effort. 
The nation therefore directed its intellectual and material powers to new challenges at home, but it needed time to absorb what had happened and to gather strength for a new struggle. It is this turning point in national history uh, that also brings on a new epoch in literature. Um, and so entering into the, the 1920s, we really get um, the this like this this is really, I think, where this like idea of Hampsonism grows um and i'm going to read like uh, another passage here from um let's see it's 1965 or 365 for the page um so it says um this is this is by um this part here is by yon ingvi the the person who wrote this chapter um so uh, the foreign influences that these young intellectuals brought with them were, of course, diverse and not everything that they had learned in Europe seemed fitting for their own country. So they're talking about how like a lot of intellectuals um, were, were traveling and learning um, in other nations. But then also the University of Iceland was being established in 1918. And there was this like growing um, local uh, scholarship that was no longer tied to um, like international going to like Denmark, usually like the going to the, the university of Copenhagen and studying there. That's where a lot of scholarship happened before 1911 in Iceland. Um, so yeah, um, they considered it necessary to fashion a new cultural politics. Most of them found a common denominator in a nationalism inspired by the idea of the golden age of Icelandic culture as manifested in the sagas, as well as by neo-romantic currents, mainly from Scandinavia. This nationalism took many forms. The most paradoxical one is what might be labeled ruralism or pastoralism. Even though intellectuals such as Seerthur Nordal had themselves been educated in Europe and were quite familiar with the advances of European culture and societies, they did not think that the same evolution could take place in Iceland, or indeed that it was desirable. Their goal was to moderate the effects of modernity on Icelandic society and to build a new modern Icelandic culture on the values and customs of the old agrarian society. In order to progress and at the same time remain or at the same time retained the organic nature of Icelandic society, according to Nordahl, a return to the past was necessary, one based on the culture of the traditional rural Icelandic society, a culture that had not severed its ties with nature or its cultural heritage. It was in particular the Norwegian novelist Newt Homsen who influenced Icelandic intellectual thinking on nation and country in this respect to such a large degree, in fact, that scholars refer to this stance as Homsenism. Um, so that's the, that's this part that's like specifically tying this stuff together. Mm -hmm. Um, I think this is important because you are seeing this like perspective being reflected in independent people. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, very much so. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think I don't we'll... know if you have immediate thoughts before I like continue on a little bit with Loxness enters the scene. No, no, no. It's, we, we have a lot of notes about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, Loxness begins writing and it, his first, uh, novel was actually published when he was 17. Um, this is child of nature. Um, but it really wasn't until, uh, so that was published in 1919. It wasn't until the great weaver from Kashmir, which was, uh, 1927, um, that he like people particularly started taking notice of him as this, um, like significant rising star almost, uh, of, um, Icelandic literature. It's important to note that when the great reefer of Kashmir was written, Loxness, um, his, his 
upbringing was a fairly wealthy one. Um, he was able to like travel and study. Uh, he had a lot of access to education that like someone like the characters and in independent people clearly don't have. Um, and the great weaver of Kashmir is this really, um, one, it is a novel that's like really, um, pushing at like what, Icelanders thought an Icelandic novel could be like what the language can be, how to tell stories. It was playing with genre um, in ways that were unexpected. It was um, playing with even just like forms of writing and telling a story in a novel um, that were, was kind of considered um, like surprising and unexpected at the time. But he's really writing from this perspective of like around this time, he's considering um, becoming a Catholic priest. (laughs) Yeah. Um, he, he like at this point is like just very Catholic. Um, and, uh, I just want to read, um, so there, there are two reviews that were published about, um, about the great weaver of Kashmir, uh, simultaneously in the literary journal Vaka. Um, this first one is, uh, was published by, um, Christian Albertson, who is a young conservative critic who later became a lecturer at the University of Berlin um, and a diplomat in the Icelandic Foreign Service. And uh, Albertson begins his fairly lengthy review uh, saying this, At last, at last, a magnificent work of literature, one that rises like a mighty cliff from the flat land of Icelandic poetry and prose of the last years. Iceland has gained a new literary genius. Uh, it is simply our duty to acknowledge this and to rejoice. Another person also writes a review in the same paper. This is Guthminder Finnbogason, who is the director of the National Library and a former professor of psychology at the University of Iceland. And his review is two words, um, and they're somewhat hard to translate, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the Icelandic first. Vjastrokath Tilberasmjör. Um, so Vjallstrokath here means like something that is, um, machine fabricated. Uh, this is the one that's a little bit more directly translatable. Uh, Tilberismur, so, uh, Tilberi is this mythological creature where, um, if you were a witch, you could steal wool from, uh, someone else's sheep and wrap it around a rib bone and then tuck it between your breasts um, and eventually it would come to life and suckle at your milk and then repay you by going out and stealing milk from other people's cows and then bringing it back and vomiting it out as butter for you. Um, and so Smur is butter. So the, what he's saying is that this book, his two words, is basically saying that it is... Stealing the like I, style it, it, from it, other countries and yeah, vomiting it, 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 it back is, up in Iceland. It is stealing. It is stealing something and it is vomiting it back as like this Icelandic thing. But it's also not even like the actual version. It is mechanical. a machine fabricated version yeah. of it. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so this very dismissive thing. Yeah. <laughs> um. So after publishing the Great Weaver of Kashmir, uh, Loxness travels some more and uh, really moves from this like interest he has in Catholicism that he's like even considering like pursuing is like, this is what my life is going to be to becoming a staunch Marxist. (laughs) Um, And one of the first things he publishes after this is in 1930, he publishes the people's book. 
which is a collection of Marxist essays that he writes. Um, and really he begins uh, advocating and, and working on like setting up um, cooperative societies for people to like come together uh, as like this cooperative version of supporting each other and selling. Um, you might recognize this because this, is, this get, also gets discussed in independent people. Um, and the following year, 1931, uh, he begins, well, he started writing it earlier, but he publishes the first of his two books about Salka Volka. The next, you know, the, the concluding book comes out in 1932. Um, and this is his first attempt at writing a Marxist novel concerned with class struggle. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about Salka Volka, but, uh, I will say, so it's essentially situated um, in a fishing village, the main character is this little girl named Salkovalka who grows up. Um, supposedly, the the book originated as an attempt to write a screenplay for um, a, a film to try to sell to the U.S. Um, called a, a Woman in Pants. Um, but basically, it is this like this girl Salkovalka who, uh, throughout the novel, is like awakening to class consciousness and. Um, also ends up like meeting this, this guy named Arnold Ayer, who, um, basically has the exact same politics as Lochness, uh, Lochness did at the, the time he was writing this. Um, this is interesting to note because it's very easy to just read him then as like Lochness's insert character. But what's interesting, and you'll also see this um, in Independent People, um, Arnold Deere is trying to set up a cooperative society, and his attempts fail. Um, he doesn't actually end up really helping people. Um, but I think, for me, the takeaway of this novel um, is that, like, the character of Salka Volka, who is this person who actually has, like, Arnold Deere has, like, the same background as Loxness as well, which is this wealthy background. And we'll see this, like, repeat with, with, um, Ingelvier Arneson, um, Jonsson in, in Independent People, I think, like, has this wealthy background. It's trying to set up these, like, cooperative societies, but actually kind of fails at bringing revolution. Um, and in Salka Volka, it's implied, I think, by the ending that, like, she has this actual connection to this like uh proletarian lifestyle um she grew up in poverty she's like actually this person who's working um these like you know menial labor jobs and stuff by the end of the book um and so she but she seems to like embody this actual ability to carry revolution in a way that um arnold Deere cannot um and that perhaps if i'm reading this in like Loxness cannot um, I will say compared to independent people, Sokka Volka to me feels a lot more heavy handed about its communist messaging. Um, but, uh, he then in 1934 and then 1935 publishes the two books of independent people, which moves from the f uh, fishing village to the farmstead and becomes far more controversial because of it, because of the way that it is no longer taking aim at, um, this more modern, like, trawlers and on the bay and things um and is now actually looking at and applying this like same way that he was talking about things in salka Volka to the farmstead as this thing that's like key to um this like homsonism in, in iceland um and so independent people ends up being a more controversial 
um, novel for people because of it, even though I think it's actually um, subtler and, and easier to like read it without necessarily getting the, the communist uh, like underpinnings, I think. But at the when he writes independent people, still extremely a communist. <laughs> um, and then I'm also just going to mention the book that he did after that, World Light, which was 1937 to 1940, uh, published as four books. Um, this is kind of considered the third in his like big attempts at doing this like Marxist social realist novel. Um, after this, he kind of moved on and began experimenting with other forms more. Um, and this one, instead of being the fishing village or the farmstead sets aim at the poet, um, kind of is setting aim at this like idea of the, the Icelandic author as the hero that I was talking about earlier. Um, but it's also sometimes considered like his most, um, th- there are different ways of like, it's the one where he seems to identify the most with the main character because he too is a writer. Um, and so because of that, it's one of the ones that's like kind of the most um, complex and like really hard to like sort through exactly what he's, what is he talking about in this book? I love world light a lot as well. Um, but uh, all three of these books are, are pretty closely related. Um, also as a note in 1938, while he is working on world light, um, he does travel to the Soviet union, um, and writes a travelogue called the Russian adventure, uh, that is very strongly in praise of like Soviet communism. <laughs> um, so, uh, all of this is sort of happening in, in this period. Um, I want to give like some final history before we get into the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, so, one other note here, 1944, there's the constitutional referendum. So on the 20th of May, 1944, um, the Icelandic people, uh, so for both of these, the vo- voter turnout was around 98.4. Um, and so on May 20th, 1944, uh, the Icelandic people with a vote of 99.5% against uh, 0.5% vote for the abolition of the Act of Union, uh, which again was the thing in 1918 that gave um, Iceland that sovereignty. Um, and then uh, three days later, the 23rd of May, 1944, uh, 98.5% versus 1.5%. So there's a 1% difference here, 1% drop. Uh, the people of Iceland vote for a new constitution. And this is where um, Iceland becomes fully independent from Denmark, is no longer in this personal union. Um, and in the way, similar way that like what happened with the active union was kind of in the wake of world war one. Um, this is happening during world war two, where they're also kind of seizing on the fact that, um, at that time, Denmark was, was, uh, you know, occupied by Nazi Germany and things mm. like there, there are political things that are happening around the war that gave them more leeway to have this vote, um, and, um, exercise this, um, two years later after world war two in 1946, um, independent people is included as part of a significant, uh, book club in the United States and popularity of it skyrockets, uh, in that year, in the U.S., the English translation of Independent People sold approximately 450,000 copies. <clears throat> and as a result, 
Uh, some stuff has been released. Some of not all of this has been declassified. Um, in fact, like in 2008, uh, Barack Obama was involved in uh, an attempt to like um, request that stuff be declassified that was denied. <laughs> um, Interesting. But this, of course, being before Obama was president, um, and it was it was because the person who was seeking this uh, release of information was, um, you know, Obama was like his. Uh, representative basically mm-hmm. um but so around this time um stuff has been released the fbi and the cia begin investigating locksness um i'm going to read a little bit from a memo from the state department to j edgar hoover your office should endeavor to discreetly ascertain the amount of money locksness has received from the sale of his book in this country through the month uh, book of the month club this information should be furnished to the bureau promptly um and there's additional stuff in the, this memo that suggests that they are essentially worried that um, Americans are buying this book and that it is going to Halidor Loxness and that he is using it to fund the Communist Party in Iceland. <laughs> yeah, pretty uh, pretty remarkable stuff there. Um, yeah. Um, actual uh, declassified documents about this book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, also, this was from a few years later, um, and again, a lot of this stuff is harder. There are like omitted pages. There, there are things that are um, like people still have not been given access to. Um, but there has been some stuff that was declassified from the CIA, um, and some of this is um, weird because. Uh, it's not always necessarily talking about Loxness directly, but so a thing that was happening around the time of independent people as well is that Loxness basically became the poster child for um, leftists in Iceland. Um, he was like sort of their guy, the person that they were pushing forward. Um, he was the, the like talking head for them. Um, <clears throat> so the in a CIA document that was declassified, they said, uh, the Communist Party is no longer a very important factor in Icelandic politics. It can neither make nor unmake a government. Despite their lack of direct political influence, the communists can still arouse and solidify a fairly strong segment of political or of public opinion and create doubts as to the wisdom of government policy on certain issues. Icelanders are opposed to the establishment of foreign military bases on their island in time of peace. As a note, the U.S. had an army base on Iceland at this time, um, <laughs> but would probably be willing uh, to receive NATO forces if war uh, or the threat of war made Iceland's involvement seem imminent. Solely because of its strategic location, i.e. it would be a significant refueling point between uh, the U.S. and Russia or the Soviet Union at the time. Um, Iceland has been drawn into the current of world affairs, albeit unwillingly and hesitantly. Icelanders desire only to be left alone, but it is as clear to them as to others that their island will not be left alone in war, perhaps not even in peace. A communist decision to seize control of the island could be implemented with as few as 500 organized armed men. Although the communist party has been capable, um, over a considerable period of seizing power by force of arms, it's unlikely that the communists would attempt a coup without prior assurance of Soviet support, without which they could not consolidate or maintain their position except for a relatively short period. Um, this is also significant to, to keep in mind because of the fact that uh, there's a U.S. Army base in Iceland at this time, and some of this stuff is probably why the U.S. thought it was worthwhile to keep a base there. Um 
Just some other little things I will click throw out here. Uh, 1952, Locksmith is awarded the Stalin Prize for literature. <laughs> Uh, 1955, Locksmith is awarded a Nobel Prize for Literature. And it's important to note, um, so when Independent People was first published, and especially when uh, it was getting really popular in the U.S. in 1946 as well, um, there was talk actually that Locksmith might win the, the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1947. Um, interestingly, he does not win it until 1955, at which point Independent People is out of print and interest in the U.S. has dropped. Um, in a New York Times article, uh, published about the award. They talked primarily about his communist ties and did not really talk about his literary works themselves um, and stated that informed sources said the Swedish Academy, some of whose members disapprove of Mr. Locksness's political views, decided to award him the prize this year only because of the relaxation of East-West tension. Um, then... In 1961, uh, Locksmith publishes an English translation of The Atom Station, which is a book that he wrote in 1948. Uh, the Atom Station is highly critical of the U.S. Army base um, in Kavlovik. And uh, in response to this publishing, uh, Locksmith is finally blacklisted by the U.S. as part of what's sometimes termed as like the second Red Scare. Um, so he managed to escape like the true McCarthyism, but does actually get blacklisted. Um, and after 1961, it is uh, extremely hard to find Locksness at all in the U.S. Um, then uh, I just want to put in here, I didn't put the date here, but uh, 1989, the Berlin Wall falls, uh, sort of the end of the Cold War, the, the sense um, in the U.S. of some of that stuff having changed. Um, and then in 1997, we get, uh, Brad Lighthouser, who resurrects the novel in the new vintage books edition, which remains the only widely accessible version in the United States. Uh, it's the version that both of us read. It's the version that probably a lot of people reading this in English are reading, um, because all other versions are, are out of print and there hasn't really been another English language version. And, um, at this point, maybe we can get into the novel, but, uh, he does have his introduction, and I think this is just important after all of this like history to keep in mind. Uh, one, the the introduction effaces a lot of the history. In fact, like describes the novel as timeless or out of time. Uh, talks about how the novel uh, has the conceit that no other like the world is no larger than Iceland itself, um, which is a thing that happens to some degree in the novel, but sort of satirically, uh, the world yeah. does definitely enter at the end. Yeah. Um, um. <laughs> and really provides like, it's, it, it gives you a full like literary an analysis of this book that is providing to you how to read this book as Bjarter is a hero struggling for independence. Um, and it's a little bit more complex than that, but it, it is giving you a specific reading and it is giving you a reading that is uh, notably omitting any real discussion uh, of Locksness as a, a communist and the like communist thought that might have influenced this work um, or any attempt to like explain what's politically happening um, in a lot of the actual like there's an entire chapter just titled politics in the, this. Novel. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, it's it's. Another situation where um, it's a if if your reading relies on like effacing or suppressing like the majority of content or even a substantial <laughs> amount of content in the work, yeah, um, 
then, you know, you're probably not doing a, uh, an honest reading. Um, I mean, I think it's probably honest for like, for Lighthouser and how he feels. Um, yeah, it, it actually, I, I think it's a, a very valuable, um, it's a valuable introduction in the sense that like, for example, the idea that, um, the idea that like the world is only as big as Iceland is in the novel, but as the subject of critical examination, not just as something that is like advanced, but something that is like examined very critically. Um, (laughs) yes. And so Lighthouser like, frames up some of you know some ideas that are like that he thinks are being advanced uncritically um or you know it's more complicated reading than that but like you know that he more or less is thinks are being advanced uncritically um but that are present in the novel under extreme critical examination um and you know resulting in probably some uh some different meanings uh yeah i i even want to like say here of like there's a part in this introduction that i laugh at all the time because maybe this feels true to um like brad's experience having met loxness a few times but i'm gonna read this passage from the introduction um because i feel like i'm knowing a number of Icelanders and knowing how Icelanders uh, are very passive aggressive. um, I am reading this interaction very differently than Brad portrays it here, Uh, which is, he says uh, the first occasion that he met Loxness was in 1986. He was then in his mid eighties and growing confused and forgetful. So we're already setting up like we should, we should, uh, you know, expect that perhaps Brad knows this novel better than Loxness does now. Um, when I spoke of my admiration for Bjarter, he looked perplexed, or, uh, a look of perplexity gave way to one of alarm. Oh, but he's so stupid, he objected. Oh, but he's so wonderfully stupid, I replied, and the old man peered at me and pondered darkly a moment, and then his features cleared, and he abruptly laughed with pleasure. Um, I have seen Icelanders do this laugh. I do not think it is, ah, you understand the novel. I think it is... You you it really make, it, think that Bjarter is good? <laughs> it makes sense that you, as an American, would yeah. come to me and say this. Um, again, I did not see this actual interaction. I just know how Icelandic passive aggression works. Um, there's a very different read of that interaction, and I, I think it is bizarre that before telling us the interaction, um, Brad feels the need to to inform us that perhaps Loxness is getting a little senile in his old age. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> this is my biggest dig I'm going to do at, at Brad's introduction. But yeah, okay. And w- so with that in mind, uh, do you want to just get right into the the novel? Yeah, um, I've been talking a lot, so I don't know if you want to do like a, a somewhat of a summary. There's so much to this that we can't go into detail, but um, no, I think. I don't think we're. I don't think a plot summary is is going to be productive necessarily. Um, yeah. At this point, <laughs> um, if if someone does want a plot summary, I mean they're they're out there. Um, you know, I, 
for me, this is more just about like, you know, I, I want to actually like go through the novel, like you and I, and talk about yeah. like, what we think. All right, let's go. <laughs> um, so I, I did a thing where like we were texting earlier and I was like, oh, I'm not really going to have a lot of notes. Um, and then I end up with like a lot of notes. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to go by like, you know, what I think some of the major themes are, they're all related and I've kind of structured them in a way that like, I think makes logical sense based on the way that they relate. Um, yeah. but we can just kind of talk about whatever we want. Um, so the main, I mean, the first thing that the novel is talking about is Iceland, obviously. Um, it is Iceland is a symbol is not only a symbol, but also a character in this story. Um, the amount of the text in this book that is just describing the like like Iceland itself, yeah. um, the landscapes, like in the actual like material reality of Iceland, um, is vast. Uh, Loxness spends a lot of time, like, making some very very intricate. Um, descriptions of the landscape um and i'll just give one one example here um from a scene when um noni is out with his mother um let's see those were the days when the willow twigs were budding on the heath when the bilberry opened its fragrant flowers in red and white and the wild bee flew humming loudly in and out of the young brushwood. The birds of the moor had laid their first eggs, yet they had not lost the love in their song. Through the heath there ran limpid little streams, and round them there were green hollows for the cow. And then there were the rocks where the elves lived. And then there was the mountain itself, with the green climbing in its slopes. There was sunshine for a whole day. Mist came, and there was no sunshine for a whole day, for two days. The heather-clad hummocks rose up in the mist, but the, but the mountains were no more. The moss grew brighter in color, the fragrance stronger and stronger. There was dew in the grass, precious webs of pearls in the heather and on the soil, where the ground was bare of turf. The mist was white and airy. Overhead one could almost glimpse the sky, but the horizon was only a few yards away. There at the top of the dingle. The heath grew into the sky with its fragrance, its verdure, and its song. It was like living in the clouds. The cow curved her tongue round the grass and cropped away steadily. She even stretched out for the willow twigs that hung over the brook. And the boy sat with his mother knitting on the edge of the hollow. And they listened to the cow and the grass and the brook and everything. There are so many passages in this book where people are either just like traveling across the landscape or sitting in nature um and like 90 percent of what is described is just the landscape um yeah the point i'm making is that um like it iceland becomes this focal point um the land like of Iceland in its like particular harshness um, 
symbolizes and like enacts the brutality, um, the beauty and the unknowability of nature. Um, and in, in just like in endless ways. Um, and this becomes the ground for like the working out of all these other themes, um, that we'll probably get into. Um, the one other thing I, yeah. I want to add before I let you respond is um, the land is also like, in addition to its material reality, which is focused on heavily, um, the land beca- also becomes this like psychic space um, for the characters to realize their interiority. Um, part of this is because the characters are so isolated um, from one another and then from civilization um that they have no um that they're deprived and desperate um so they're forced to like work out their interiority against a landscape um but there's also i think some other meaning there as well um and we see this too where like interpretations of of and interactions with the landscape become this cipher uh that the characters use to understand themselves um, and their lives. Yeah. Um, I was actually going to jump to this because I I was going to read another passage from um, much later in the book, but that also talks about the Heath um, where they're talking about um, Austosolilia. And uh, so I'm going to start mid paragraph, but this is a starts on page 320. Um, whereas one might have imagined that her favorite poetry would have dealt with love meeting love on the heath, she was no sooner in bed in the evenings than there sang in her heart lines telling her of when the heath and love might meet in the night, love in the heath, and the tears would soon be trickling down her cheeks, and she would feel that she was weeping not for Colma alone, and not for herself alone, but weeping with all the world in an ecstasy of love. Rise, O moon, from behind thy clouds, stars of the night arise, Guiding light, lead me to my love, where he rests and sleep alone. Soft a while, ye roaring winds, soft ye rushing streams, let my song resound on the hill of storms, let my loved one hearken to me. And she would bury her face in the pillow to stifle the sound of her sobbing, for no one might discover that she was weeping because of Ossian. No one would ever think of blubbering as much as our Austa Soldilia. But why was she weeping over this poem? It was because she understood both love and the heath, like Ossian. For he who understands the heath understands love, and he who understands love understands the heath. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, this like this mingling of, um, you know, a- as people who tend to a farm, um, and it's it specifically being a sheep farm, which I think is important to note as well because um the main crop is hay um you know they grow hay and they cut hay to feed the sheep so that they can get wool and meat um and so it being this like this landscape where um you know having like grass having your sheep roam in the mountains all of this, like this becomes part of what the farm is in a way that I think is very different than like, it's purely a bunch of crops. Yeah. It's Um, like a fixed like crop field. Yeah. Um, Whereas like sheep herding involves them like walking and ranging over like across this entire landscape to like gather sheep and herd sheep and whatever. 
Um, and so there is this way that like that landscape is their every, like it, that is their livelihood. Um, that is where they spend all their time. Uh, there's a part where I don't remember exactly where it is in the, the novel. Um, but when, like, I can't find the exact page, but when Astasolilia gets to travel with Biarte for the first time to mm-hmm. town, um, and sees the ocean and like, does not understand at first what it is, that it is like this sky blue thing that is not the sky. And that seems to stretch for eternity. Um, and we, as the, the reader immediately recognize it as the, the sea, as the ocean, like before it is explained to her. Um, but also it happens at this point in the novel where we've spent so long on the farm already that it is almost like, Whoa, there's an ocean. Like, yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? There, um, <laughs> there's, there's also like as a sidebar, when I first read this novel, there's this effect that, I mean, if you're not really attuned to like the, cause it's, you get enough in the first part of the novel um before they go to fjord to to place the like the time but if you're not like i would go so far as to say like if you haven't read this novel before you get the impression that like they're living in like 1800 or or like or even earlier like 1700 yeah and then i mean all of a sudden some of this is that like the Icelandic farmstead had not changed significantly in in centuries, um, and that's part of what's being reflected here. But it is also dealing with this like Hamsonism idea of the pastoral as this like eternal thing stretching all the way back to the sagas. That the yeah. the the farmstead is like the same farmstead that the saga warriors like lived on intended to. Um, yeah, and also a um, I think there's a like a critical kind of like bifurcation of space that's happening where you're like observing the, you, you get like immersed into this world and you like the various hardships uh, of which there are many um, like the deprivation and the desperation of this lifestyle. And you're thinking like, Oh, this is, you know, some much earlier time. Uh, and then you just get like, you know, all of a sudden they take this trip to Fjord and you're like, oh my God, this is in like, you know, the 1900s. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a kind of a shocking moment as well that draws, I think, more like critical attention to um, the harshness of like this existence. Yeah. Um, but, and, and that I think is also significant for the way that it is. Um, like, I guess the thing I'll, I'll say up at the front here, cause I think this is going to continue to come up as we talk about this novel. Um, I think it is easy to like read individual chapters, read the depiction of certain characters, read like certain scenes as, Oh, Loxness does this thing where he is like, perhaps taking the perspective of a child character or, or a character that's not like super learned or um, knowledgeable about like a specific topic. And it is presenting something to you from their perspective where, um, you know, the, the sea is a big example of this that I can immediately point to of, we get this extended description of, of Astasolilia um, 
seeing the sea for the first time and like trying to comprehend what it is. Um, and then we kind of get revealed to us. Um, ah, this is what it is. And we, as the viewer might already, you know, likely in many cases have ascertained it. Um, and sometimes we don't get it as directly revealed as, um, as like it happens in that exact sequence. Um, but like, honestly, this is a funny book. Um, there's a lot of humor here yeah, in sure. all of the bleakness. Um, and a lot of it is this sort of satirical humor where we are given the perspective of a character, but we can read between the lines and kind of laugh at that perspective or, um, or find the, the weird contradictions in it. And I think the jump that a lot of people don't always do with this book is realizing that I think the book as a whole is also doing this on like a macro scale and not just that micro scale. Yeah. Um, that it, it is presenting to you this very lengthy discussion of like giving you this sense of, ah, the, the like noble farmer, um, because it, it is expecting you as the reader to see the, um, inherent contradiction of the positioning of Biarter as a hero as we watch him like single-handedly destroy everyone in his family. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that like, it, it is, it is hoping and expecting that you as a reader will, will pick up on that and like draw that out further. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to like mention that at the beginning. Cause I, th- I think that comes up even with some of the stuff that you're talking about around like um, the way that it is kind of subverting the like, whole beginning of this novel really does feel timeless. Uh, the only, like the world does not extend beyond the farmstead. Um, and this farm could exist at any moment in history. And that is a, a position, um, that existed in like Icelandic political thought that, that I, or that, um, how do wants to like wrestle with and, and contend with and like critique, um, but also spend such a long time like setting it up and la- allowing the book to feel like that is this book is just like, ah, yes, it is the the timeless farm where that is the entire world. Um, you know, we get this like slow unraveling of the, the, the world from, it literally is just this farm. Like the, the extents of the farm is like Uriras Miri like the, the farm that Bjarter came from. And that's like for a long time, all we really hear about, we might kind of hear about like, Oh, this shop owner. Um, we learned that there, there's another farm across the river when Bjarter like, you know, chases the reindeer. reindeer. Yeah. Um, and it um, like continues to expand. And, and then we get, as you're talking about this going to Fjord and the world expands and we start hearing about the world war and like, you know, this, the scope continues to expand out from, it starts with like, honestly, it starts with almost this, um, inscription of like, uh, of saga and myth and, uh, folklore with the, the very first chapter, which really has even compared to the rest of the novel, more of this like saga style. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Absolutely. The, like the, the very beginning here of like in early times, say the Icelandic chronicles, men from the Western islands came to live in this country. And when they departed, left behind them crosses, bells and other objects used in the practice of sorcery from Latin sources. Maybe this is like how Icelandic sagas start. (laughs) 
like Icelandic sagas start this exact same way of like, ah, here's the historical records that we're using, blah, blah, blah. Their leader was Colum Kitley. And we're just like immediately are jumping through time as we talk about like this uh, historical figure. Right. Like this is this is how the sagas are written. Is right. The first and then moving into like um, this narrative, you know, of murder and like myth. Yeah. And et cetera. And that 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 narrative also being again still in this like like that first chapter this first chapter i i want to like really emphasize this has the saga feel even as it's going into like but as mistress gunvor grew older in years says the story she began to thirst greatly for human blood and she hungered for human marrow and like so much of it is, is said like brief and matter of fact like it is even said that she took the blood of her surviving children and drank it with her mouth like this like appealing to hear the stories that I'm drawing from um, is a big saga thing. And this like, we're not getting this extended discussion of how she would like drink blood. It just says it is even said that she took the blood of her surviving children and drank it with their mouth. She had the scaffold built for incantate. Like <laughs> it's just like a sentence that is telling you something. Here's another sentence that is telling you something about her. Yeah. Um, and understanding that this is like, in the saga style and is talking about these like myths and folklores and these like ideas of ghosts and things that would haunt a space. Um, I think also helps like, like Colum Kitley and Gunvor stuff is like really situating it in this like mythic past that exists in um, thoughts about Iceland that go to these Icelandic sagas and the, you know, yeah, but at- really the like ninth and 10th centuries that they're talking about. Yeah. And at the same time, it, it is, I think, very significant that it opens with this, like, invocation of the saga style and also, like, this um, mythic past, like, specifically the legend of, like, you know, Bjarger's farm, where the story will be said. Yeah. But it does it, and this is the other thing about this book, is that the critical elements are, like, present from page one. Like, all of the critiques that... You know, there's development, like, as, as it goes through, of course, but, like, the critical attitudes towards, like, certain subjects, like, um, for example, like, this romanticist, um, like, movement um, and the way that that ties into nationalism. Like, the critique of that is... You know, this movement's represented by the Madame of Muri. And, like, in yeah. the first few chapters, we're already getting, like, this figure, the Madame, who is this, like, prominent poet, but is shown to be, um, is treated very, like, sardonically um, and critically, yeah. I think. She will um, do these lengthy speeches about, like, the, uh, you know, the, like, nobility of the peasants. Icelandic. Yeah. Um, and then we'll like talk to, you know, Bjarter's first wife, Rosa, and be like, oh, to have like such a small croft, like this is truly life. You don't know how difficult I have it with my, my many, many rooms and the servants that I have to watch over. And, oh, this is, this is true life. This is, you know, this is true independence and freedom. Not like me, a, a person who is, you know, the wife of a like very wealthy farmer who has like hired help and everything right and Um, and not only like a wealthy farmer but like 
the largest landowner landowner of that region who like rules over the lives of all of these people and essentially like enslaves them yeah toiled for years to like try and get out of the debt and be able to buy his own farm (laughs) yeah like he is like enslaving or at least like putting into indentured servitude like all of these poor like all the children of these poor families um he's like the primary lender um so they they all like have to sell their you know it's one of the things one of the plot points is that they're either selling their sheep to this guy or to this danish merchant um and so he's like exploiting them economically um putting them into indentured servitude ruling over like basically this whole region and then his wife is this like romanticist you know poet of of great prominence we were told um who in whose like poetry she idealizes like you know this class that her family is exploiting (laughs) yeah um and then of course this like that narrative becomes very important in the plot um because you know with with angie um but yeah, like all, all of these critiques are like present from the beginning. And if, if you read closely, you can see like the way that Loxness and his language um, is really pointing you to like, um, it, it's pointing towards a critical like uh, perception of, of these characters. Um, yeah. And I think it's the same with this invocation um at the start of the novel where like you're pointing out it's like invoking the saga style um and the presence of this like you know mythic history but it's done in such a way that it's it's held at arm's length um and uh there's like some meaning in that as well it's kind of like an ironic invocation of um you know, almost a um, a per- uh, consciously performed, um, uh, like device, um, and and the like performance of it, the artifice of it is, you know, um, apparent. Yeah. Um, there's also almost the, this comical like. You would get this, uh, in the saga, you would get this sort of introduction of, like, here's the history of this land, and then it would, like, lead up to, like, this person who's going to be a a great hero, who's going to do great deeds, like, you know, jumping, uh, you know, his height, being (laughs) able to jump his height upwards, or, like, uh, fight with a sword in both hands, or whatever, um... And we just like end with like, and so in the time of Sheriff Yon Regdalen, it was added to the lands of Rasmiri first as sheep coats for the winter, whereas its later name of winter houses, uh, once its later name of winter houses, but afterwards as a lamb's fold. And then just like goes into like, and then Biarcha buys it. <laughs> yeah. In like the next chapter. Um, it, which is um... also this thing of like, uh, at once, it is doing this thing that is happening in like, Icelandic culture at the time of trying to link like the modern or, you know, this idealized like farmer 
um, that exists like around the turn of the century um, and linking it back to the sagas, but it is doing it in such a direct way that like, it almost like pulls out the, the, um, it like pulls out a certain humor in it. And also like kind of surprises you in a way that um, even though this is what is happening with like m- other thoughts that are occurring at the time, doing it in this very direct way, um, like makes you confront it more directly as a thing that's going to be talked about and like uh, analyzed and critiqued um, and figures that critique like in doing it so directly from let's talk about saga time or what, you know, Colum Kitley and everything to, and now here's a farmer in what we are going to find out is like early 19 hundreds Iceland. Yeah. Um, abs- and it also, um, it, there's a passage here that, that I want to read from this same section. Um, it projects backwards. Like there's in, in this treatment of the sagas, there's also Loxness brings in like the, you know, this kind of like historical materialist perspective, if you will, and yeah. projects it backwards, like almost, um, rather than letting the sagas, like rather than carrying forward the sagas as the de- definitive, um, you know, as like the definitive uh, meaning of experience of, you know, Icelandic life, he like overwrites the sagas with this like, you know, historical materialist perspective when he has the um he has this pa- he has uh this passage from the same chapter um talking about you know the the curse of Colum Kitley and like how it's been destroyed you know people have built it's been destroyed over and over um how often has the bigging of Augustir on the moor been destroyed by specters i'll let you correct my pronunciation after <laughs> Um, <laughs> on the moor been destroyed by specters and rebuilt in spite of specters century after century the lone worker leaves the settlements to tempt fortune on this knoll between the lake and the cleft in the mountain determined to challenge the evil powers that hold his land in thrall and thirst for his blood and the marrow in his bones generation after generation the crofter raises his chant contemptuous of the powers that lay claim to his limbs and seek to rule his fate to his dying day. The history of the centuries in this valley is the history of an independent man who grapples barehanded with a specter, which bears a new and ever newer name. Sometimes the specter is some half-divine fiend who lays a curse on his land. Sometimes it breaks his bones in the, in the guise of a noin. Sometimes it destroys his croft in the form of a monster. And yet, always, to all eternity, it is the same specter assailing the same man century after century. No, he said defiantly. Um, and this is Bjarter entering the scene. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Saying and, no. And of course we figure out, like, you know, what destroys Bjarter is not Colm Kitley. It's, you know, the, like, material predicament of the, like, not only, you know, trying to be an independent farmer um, under, like, these circumstances, uh, under the various, like, oppressive circumstances um, that exist, um, 
you know, but also like the harshness of the land itself, the inhospitability uh, or the impossibility of like, you know, um, making uh, living in this way, um, like the impossibility of being like this independent person um, in this country. Like there's something about the land itself that is, um, you know, just from practical standpoint, like, uh, is inhospitable to this way of living. Um, and the assertion of like, oh yeah, it's, this is a repeating cycle, not because of like, you know, Colm Kitley, um, but rather like Colm Kitley is the personification of like, you know, the, these other forces that are really at play and have always been at play. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, there's, there's so many, uh, notes I have here that I don't think we're going to get through, um, which is okay. Um, yeah, but, uh, I I think one thing I want to hit on is like an immediate jumping point from some of the stuff that we've been talking about is um, the positioning of, so towards the end of the novel, we get this like emergence of this socialist push in Iceland. Um, And specifically like this discussion around a cooperative society, um, which is, being put forward by Inki, the um, Ingolver Arneson Jonsson, who is the the son of Jon, and so he is also a, like he's a child of the Rasmirians. Um and I think that it, I think it is significant here to that the character who seemingly is like most directly professing um, the ideas that Loxness was professing, in the same way that I was talking about with with Salka Valka. Um, is this wealthy man from a wealthy family um, and who, even though it seems to be pointing towards this like new, better future um, is also kind of just the new merchant. Yes, in town. exactly. Um, it, it, it is not actually like, like he fails. And some of the reason why he fails might be, like there might be different ideological things that are happening and that failure has to do more with like perhaps the viability of this cooperative society for what they're trying to do and things like that. But it it is also important that like he is, uh, one is like it implied to be the father of Austasolilia. Yes. Um, this, this like comes up at various points um and also is this like this wealthy man um who is just a part of the same family that is kind of tormenting Bjarter and his family even as like Bjarter you know I agree that what I think is so powerful about this novel to me is the fact that like the material conditions that Bjarter is living under um is this like extremely uh, like so much of the hardship comes from that. And it comes from like the society that he's in, but it also comes from the way that he buys into it, at least in the sense of like this idea that he has of like 
independence of what it means to be like an upstanding independent person. Yeah. Um, which is like tied to, you know, there's a preoccupation, I think, in this novel around independence, which makes sense as like something that is following sovereignty and is also, I think, to some degree looking forward to like, there was still push for what do we do next? Because we don't even necessarily want this like union that we have with Denmark. Um, and, you know, it, it's almost like presciently pointing towards some of the anxieties that would then happen um, during World War II when there was the the U.S. Army base, because that became this strange thing of um, part of it gave them the leeway to, like, declare full independence and create their own constitution. Um, but also, to some degree, were they trading one colonist for another? Were they, were they trading the colony of the king of or the colonizers of, like, Denmark you know, trading being a colony of Denmark for essentially being this like new form of colony of the U.S., um, being occupied by the U.S. Um, this hadn't quite happened yet, but I think, I think Loxness is in this moment thinking about like, what does actual Icelandic independence look like? Um, and I, I think sees even something like a cooperative as not being enough to truly break out of like what is the the problem here? Um, and I think also for me, knowingly positioning himself as being like, I am not actually the one who can bring change. Um, I hope that I can like convince people. I hope that I can, I can um, like do something, but like the people who finally like, th th there's this moment at the end of the novel. And I'm, I'm jumping around a lot here, but like, there's this moment that is often talked about as like, oh, the great tragedy of the novels that finally like Bjarter not only eats another person's bread, but it is stolen bread um, because he like basically falls in with these communists that are about to, uh, like, yeah, actual communists. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with like weapons that are like going to go and attack people <laughs> um, and are like stealing bread and are talking about like, well, under the system of capitalism, like in fact, like, this is our bread. Um, like everything is stolen from us in in an unjust system where like everything is being stolen from us. Like it is actually like, okay for us to steal um, when we are in this position. Like they're like making this argument. Um, I may not be perfectly uh, explaining yeah, it more or less. Moment, but yeah. Yeah. Um, and basically it's like, I'm going to leave like <laughs> my, my best son, my son who is like, you know, most in line to like be the person who would take over the farm. I'm going to leave him with these communists. And I am like, but it, it, for me, this is that final moment where like too late. He finally, I'm getting a cat trying to break in. Um, like too late for me. He, he is starting to um, like awaken to something. Um, and begin to like see some folly. Like this is where it really has this change of heart. Um, and I, I think it's actually important that like it is happening around these communists that are not Ingi that are not this like socialist, like we're making a cooperative society. It is just like, we are actually going to try and bring revolution to Iceland. Um, and that's when he's like finally able to just give up. Like I'm being an asshole and I should just go see my, my, my daughter, daughter who I like rejected. Yeah. Um, even though she may not even be blood related to me, like she's the person throughout the novel that he like 
seems to care most deeply about. It, it is said that like he gives her preferential treatment for things and stuff. Um, and I have a certain read around that, which is that like, if throughout all of this, he believes that she is the daughter of like Ingi of like the, the rice Mary, there's a certain perhaps pride that he has of like, ah, I am fostering their child in the way that like he was presumably fostered and that so many children are fostered by, you know, Yon and the madam. Yeah. Um, and, and the, here's this thing where, yes, it's because they're like trying to foist off their illegitimate child. Um, but still I am fostering their child. And it is only when that like illegitimate, it's only when Alstasolilia gets pregnant um, when she's still young. Um, and it like, you know, isn't even going to get confirmed at the church because of this, that he like finally rebukes her and, and says like, go back to your parent, like your actual parents, basically Um, go back to your actual family. You're not actually my child. Um, And it is only like after he's finally able to kind of get over himself, that he can go and be like, no, actually I do care about you. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think so. The thing with Bjorter is so much of the core, like, and I want to make sure that we, you know, really get to like, just discuss Bjorter and the way that he figures in before we yeah. go to questions. Um, the thing with Bjorter, this is like how I read it. Um, there's a complex layering of irony and empathy in this novel um, that I think can be hard to it suss out um, exactly what's going on. Um, but... So Bjorter is essentially like a slave, or at least in de- and he's an indentured servant um, yeah. to the Rasmuris for like the first eighteen years of his life, and you know because his parents presumably like weren't able to care for him, um, he never had like freedom um, because of this system that he's born into. Um, he like slaves away for them for, you know, 18 years in order to gain his freedom. And then his response to the system is to be like, you know, I am now obsessed with this one particular, particular idea of freedom that is defined by like independence and self-reliance. Yeah. Um, and I think Loxness frames him very critically it a big part of the critique of this book is watching how his fixation on this ideal and the way that he how his this definition of freedom and then his attempts to realize like this like this concept of freedom results in unbelievable misery and violence towards his own family and destroys his own life and all of theirs. Um, At the same time, and this is where I think like someone like Brad is, is getting, gets mixed up. Like on Brad. Yeah. We're just, (laughs) we're yeah. Completely uh, dragging Brad here. Um, not Brad who guested on our podcast, specifically the the introduction writer for 
Yes, Lighthouser, Brad yeah. Lighthouser. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to say that because it was just funny being like Brad. <laughs> yeah. No. No. Um, yeah. Not 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 our guest, Brad. Um, yeah. <laughs> Locksmith also should like insists on like the profundity and power and dignity of Bjarter's like the the strength of his desire for freedom and the importance of like that desire as such um especially because like in the face of all of these powers that like want to crush freedom um and so there's this complex portrayal which i do think like impugns and condemns Bjarter ultimately. Yeah. Um, but also I, I mean, like preserves this, this aspect um, like of his, um, of his character as something that is like profound. Um, yeah. And the, you know, the tragedy is not only like you know all of the stuff that he does, um, but also that his the impulse his impulse to be free is something that is in a way it, it is heroic, um, but like the way that he conceives of that because of you know all of these various factors um, is not really like a conception of freedom that will overturn this system or that presents any problem for this system. Um, he too is just like exploited in turn, um, even in the moments when he's able to like most closely, uh, when he comes closest to realizing this vision, um, he's still like fully enmeshed. Uh, he, he can't escape from exploitation. Um, and, you know, and then of course he loses everything. Um, and then at the very end, we get this emergence of like actual communism, which you're, which you're pointing to when he encounters them and his, and and he's like, oh no, like you need to like work and be independent. And that's what life is all about. And then he starts listening to them and he's like, oh wait, I actually like feel some kinship with these people. And it's the first time in the novel when, like, that ever happens for him. And I think there's, like, that's the connection being made there, which is, like, oh, there's this revolutionary impulse, this desire for freedom that is contained in this movement that we see at the end. But it's too late for Bjarter. Like, yeah, he's, like, ideologically and then just, like, you know physically and and in various other ways like he he's not able to um to actually go all the way and make that commitment um yeah and it it, i i want to like go off of what you're saying here and tie in some other things with the end of the novel here um but like one thing i want to say immediately there is also that for me i think part of what 
let me back up real quick and be like, uh, yeah, I, I agree. And to me, some of this, so much of the humanity and the, the way that even as, um, you know, we haven't like really gone into detail, but like both of Bjarter's wives die. Um, his first wife dies in childbirth while he is chasing a you that is already dead because she killed it and ate it because she was pregnant and he was not giving her enough food. Yeah. Desperate um, for nu- nutrition. Yeah. And so while he was away um, at Fjord, presumably, I think that's where he went. Um, that's she when, he, goes, ate that's when he gets almost drowned in the river. Well, yeah. Well, first he goes away and she kills and eats the you. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then he comes back and then he's like, Oh, winter setting in. I need to go find this. You, it's such a great you. Um, and, she won't admit that she killed and ate it because he is a domineering and, and terrifying man who knows what he would do if, if she did. Um, and then she dies in, in childbirth while he's searching for the you and then, you know, goes after the reindeer. Um, and then with his second wife, um, <laughs> let me scroll up and confirm the name. Finna. Um, Finna. Yeah. Um, he finally, well, actually, he doesn't acquiesce. Um, a, a cow is sent, has already been paid for. Uh, she's been asking for a cow, and he refuses to buy her one. Um, and finally, she gets a cow. Um, and, you know, it, it is figured as, like, when he kills the cow, that's when he kills her. Yeah. Um, that's when she gives up. Um, and so, like... Both of both of their deaths are kind of laid at his feet, and the novel um, does not want you to like forget that. I don't think. Yeah. Um, and it also the way that like the his children end up, um, you know, many of his kids die, um, and that gets brought up. Like there are kids who die when they're you know newborns, um, and then we kind of like track what happens to to his other kids, um, which like. Noni goes off to America, um, which is perhaps like the best outcome of, <laughs> of any of these. Yeah. Um, but, and then, uh, and it, yeah. And then the but, so, oldest brother like dies because yeah. he like flees out into the, like into a blizzard on Christmas. Yeah. Because, because he, he claims to have seen Colm Kitley and um, I think it, it is heavily implied by the novel is the one who is killing sheep yes. on the farm. Yes. Um, and saying it was Colum Kitley and then, and then flees into the blizzard because um, of like Bjarcher's domineering and like, you know, the, the overall misery of like the existence that they live. Yeah. And Bjarcher finds the body and tells no one um, and doesn't like a barrier or anything leaves it where it was. Yeah. Um, which I think also there's some like it is unclear. I don't think the novel is saying necessarily that he like, you know, personally like chased after the kid and killed him or something. But there is also a certain amount of like, like he leaves and Bjarter goes after him to not in like a literal way, but like in that passage, um, like Helgi goes. And then soon after Bjarter goes in kind of a huff being like, Oh, I need to like look after the, the sheep and things. Um, and so there's also like this certain insinuation of like Bjarter's involvement in that death 
Um, even if it's never like specifically, ah, there's a scene where like Bjarter goes and chases after Helgi and pushes him off or like, I don't think the novel is even saying that's what happened. Yeah. Um, but it is like providing the, the connection between Bjarter and, and Helgi's death in a way where, um, that's also being, I, in the same way that like the killing of the, the cow is tied to Finna's death. Yeah. Um, there, there's tying happening here. Um, and then, you know, he re- rebukes Asta Solilia. Um, and then the, so then I think it's significant that the end is, and this is where I'm going to like tie in all of these things. Um, so I'm going to read from a, a few segments. So there are these moments where this book becomes preoccupied with God. And I think a really key part for me, at least in, in, um, interpreting this is, um, a part where Vender um, is going and meeting with Astasola Lily after she's um, been driven out. And um, let me see. Um, I want to like go back and double check who's speaking. Cause it's one where it's not immediately obvious. Um, so yeah, I think Astasol Lilia says, uh, didn't you say there was somebody harder still than father? Somebody who ruled over him and held him in his hand? Um, well, I did say so in a way, but it wasn't because I believe in Colum Kitley. No, and it isn't Colum Kitley either, she said. It is the power that rules the world, and you can call it what you like, Gvender boy. Um, Gvender says, is it God? Yes, if it is God that benefits from people slaving like brute beasts all their lives long and never having a chance at all that life has to offer, then it is God. All right. And now I'm afraid I shall have to leave you Gvender. The washing is waiting for me. Um, and so I think like this, for me, it's significant that this passage of if it is God that benefits from people slaving like brute beasts all their lives long and never having a chance at all, uh, at all that life has to offer, then it is God. All right who who holds power over their father um who's like often talked about by the kids as being the most powerful human right mm-hmm. um this gets interestingly tied up with the idea of the Tsar when um Bjarter's finally coming into wealth and is building a, a house um and is talking about the house and says um i think this is actually after they they lose the house and he's leaving forgetting exactly i found the the page but i forget exactly where it happens in the story um but biarter says i could have bought plenty of doors plenty of beds plenty of chairs if i had wanted to and perhaps a picture of god and one of the czar too if i had uh if i'd felt like it um and so this like buying pictures of god and also the czar um then also becomes interesting when you get towards the end of the book with the Tsar has fallen, um, where, uh, says, um, let me see. I'm going to, I'm going to read this part where it's kind of doing like thought process from, um, here we go. Uh, this is actually a lengthy paragraph. So let me see if I can find like a good moment in it. Um, Uh, so he, he is like here where he has eaten the stolen bread, um, and is thinking about like, should I, yeah, here. And they, about they like reveal to him that the, um, that the czar has fallen in Russia. Yeah. 
And so then in the chapter, the czar has fallen. Um, this is him thinking about uh, Gvender, again, the like one child he had sort of at the end. Um, there lay the lad fast asleep with his two mates, big, powerful men, all three of them, broad in the chest and with resolute jaws, their hands thick and big boned, while above them lay several pick handles. And he felt that his uh, son showed up so well in his sleep among these strong, well-built fellows that he had not the heart to wake him and take him away. He would show up just as well among them when he was awake. He felt that in reality such men deserved their own land and govern it. But if Ingolvier Arnolson's men could bring rifles and kill them, his son included, what then? Wouldn't it be safer to wake the boy and take him up, uh, take him away up country rather than let him be shot like a dog on the street here? He had always thought a lot of the lad, though he had concealed it well. To be sure, he had once been on a very, uh, the very point of sneaking off to America, but his love in, of independence had won the day, and he had decided to overcome the difficulties of life at home, here along with his father. Ah, well, reflected Bjarter, what does it matter? I suppose I've lost boys before. For a moment, he cast his memory back to the boys he had carried off in a box to bury in the Rasmirian's uh, churchyard. And to the, those others that he had lost in his struggle for independence. Maybe it's just as well that this one should get away, uh, go the same way then, he thought. A man is not independent unless he has the courage to stand alone. Gretter Ausmanderson was an outlaw on Iceland's mountains for 19 years until he was vanquished in Drange. But he was avenged in Miklagard for all that, the biggest city in the world. Perhaps I too will be avenged with the passing of the years, possibly in some big city even. All at once he remembered that the Tsar had fallen, and the thought cheered him greatly. What would old Yon of Mieri have to say to that? So, having abandoned the idea of waking his son, he left the barracks, uh, barrack as quietly as possible. And so I think there's this tying of, like, God being this thing that, that rules over and is, like, bringing suffering to these people. God being tied to the Tsar, and if the Tsar can die, why can't God too? <laughs> yeah why and can't also, this system die to yeah um, and, and more to that point the the first appearance of the czar in the in the novel is at yon the bailiff's house it's one of yes. the things that is like characteristic of him that he keeps a portrait of the czar and of course this is the guy who you know is like is this um you know lords over all of these peasants and is very much the representative of like this landowning class in Iceland that eventually, you know, becomes a new Icelandic aristocracy and supplants the merchants and, and like becomes the perpetrators of this oppressive system. Um, so, you know, there's a direct linkage there from God to the czar, then to the, the bailiff. And then I, I would yeah. also argue to Ingi who becomes the new prime yes. minister by the end of the, yeah. uh, the end of the novel. Um, but, and so then it, it's significant, this like tying of like the fall of the czar, obviously being like the rise of the Soviet Union. Um, and so it really is this like explicit tying to like, perhaps, but in a way that this novel like refuses to to go beyond, it kind of ends here, perhaps like in the this communist hope, this like revolution, there can actually be this change um, that it is so impossible for Bjarter himself. Um, the other thing that I think is significant is then he goes to see Astasolilia. Um, and in, in much is made of the way that she is stubborn, um, like her father. And so I, I think the other important thing that he's doing here is being the first one who will go and 
will go to her because she won't come to him mm-hmm. and admit he, he is wrong and like show to her that like in, in some ways this like way that he was approaching things is actually wrong um that like he needs to to do something else other than this like staunch stubborn like stand on your own independent blah 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 yeah um, i mean it's, it's like it's, what he's showing is that he like he's uh, of course it's you know fraught because of everything that's transpired between them um but he's showing like a form of love yeah you know like choosing love now instead in spite of like this other like conviction that has defined him and that led him to become like you know that led him to do all of this violence to everyone in his family um he like he forsakes that yeah um there's there's lots more we could talk about with like depictions of budding sexuality that could tie in with Utena, um, with poetry and writing, but are we getting to the point where we just need to do questions? Yeah, we do. Um, um, I think we, I think we've talked a good amount about this. this Yeah. I, we didn't Uh, even get through, like, there's so much more to discuss in this novel. Yeah. Um, I'm almost just like, we should do another episode on this at some point or discuss it on a question bucket. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I was reading this book. Um, and I was like, like that, this is not what this podcast is. It's just an entirely different beast to do this. But part of me was like, God, at least break it into the two books as two separate episodes or break it into like, you know, the, two parts of the first book, like as two separate episodes, like breaking this into four episodes where it's like part one, part two of book one, and then part one and part two and conclusion of book two. Yeah. <laughs> this conclusion is so short, but um, I, I actually feel yeah. bad because there's so much left to discuss. And like, like to the listener, like trust us when I say we have gone through maybe like 15% of the notes that we have here. <laughs> Of, like, really important discussion points. Um, So, I don't know. Maybe we'll we'll get back to this. Maybe it will just, like, you know, put the notes online or something. Um, Yeah. So people can can read through and could just I could just share this note, this, like, note document that we have as, like, a thing that if people have the link, they can look at. Yeah. Um, And then people can just respond, you know. Um, Yeah. We can continue the discussion on... uh, you know on the discord yeah so questions we had two people write in um with a lot of questions that in the interest of time we could spend a lot of time on these but um i think we can try and be a little bit you know to the point with them yeah um still have fun with them um I'm going to lead into because some of these ones get get m- more entertaining as we go on. So I started with Zhuo with the the most to the point of uh, what is your favorite passage in the book? Do you yeah. have one right off the top of your head? Yeah. Um, I think, um, again, the interest of time, I don't know if I'm going to read through the whole thing. Um, but the passages uh, in the reindeer chase scene um are excellent uh i think they're the 
some of the passages where Loxness is the most openly sardonic uh, and playful in in his writing, um, and uh, like openly um, openly mocking Bjarter, even as like he's you know also composing this tense um sequence uh so uh yeah those those are some of my favorite passages um yeah i I would i would say yeah that's a a very good like i i brought up some of my favorite moments um as we were talking through like i i enjoy the a lot of the the conversations with as to Solilia in particular towards the end of the book um, are good. Uh, like the entire conclusion, I that whole section is really good. Um, but there's one like passage that uh, for some reason has stuck with me, like since I first read this book. Um, and so I don't even know what page this is on. Um, this is just in my head. Like I can just recite this. Uh, there's a similar passage from world light that I can also just instantly recite. Um, but for this one, it, it this happens, um, after Bjarter, uh, kills the, the calf of the, the cow, but mm. he hasn't killed the cow yet. Um, and it's just the line, uh, the lines of there's nothing so merc- merciless as mankind. How can we justify ourselves, especially to the dumb animals around us? But the first days are always the worst. And there is much comfort in the thought that time effaces everything crime and sorrow, no less than love. Um, and I don't know why that is always like just stuck with me, but um, yeah, that, that one has. Yeah. That's that sequence <laughs> um, is, is crushing. Yeah. Uh-oh. Um, and just the, those like final lines are um, like they are they encapsulate to some degree this like strange mix of like brutality and also like this weird hope that exists in the novel mm-hmm. of like there's a certain weird hope of like ah yes like love is effaced by time but so is crime and sorrow. Yeah. <laughs> um that's like you know it's like still yeah, within it, this like yeah dark crushing but there's also a certain amount of like well but things can change. <laughs> yeah. Well there's this this indifference of time. Um, yeah. And the way that like love continues to recur um like the fact that love continues to recur is simultaneously like a source of sorrow. Um, but also like a source of hope. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, the other one that is from world light, uh, is, uh, human beings in point in fact are lonely by nature. And once you feel sorry for them and mourn with them and love them, um, it is certain that people would, Oh God, I've lost the final end of this line. Um, I used to completely know this by heart. Um, it's certain that people would uh, love one each other. Now I now I've lost it. That's right. I'm on a podcast and I'm tired. <laughs> Ask <laughs> me another time and I can. I'm sure I'll be able to whip it out. I'm again. gonna spring it on um, you in but, our, our uh, second gig podcast. <laughs> um, 
Question two, if you were a kitchen utensil that becomes a person, what would you be? This is also a really good sequence in the book that I always kind of forget is in this book because it feels so... um, There's this like extended sequence of Noni in the morning, like... And it's talking about this morning on the croft and everything. Yeah, imagining um, the the kitchen, the dishes and the kitchen utensils, like yeah, t- speaking at night in, in the early morning. And, and tonally, this is so much of like the very beginning of World Light, which is from the perspective of the main character when he's a child. Um, that I I like in my mind sometimes forget that it's in this book and not World Light, but it's another great sequence. Um, I think I would be uh like chef's knife um both because it's like it is like a thing that actually does a lot of work in the kitchen like you use a chef's knife all the time um but also it's like you know of kitchen utensils it's maybe a little bit bratty (laughs) (laughs) it's the thing that can cut you yeah and yeah you need to maintain it like really carefully and yeah um Mm Yeah, it won't it won't tolerate just being like thrown into the kitchen sink. Like you should wash it nicely, dry it, put it back in its place, not clanged up against other metal. If you're putting your kitchen like your chef's knives in just like with your regular cutlery, stop it. <laughs> um yeah, you got to have a wooden block for that thing. Yeah. So I think I'm a chef's knife. Okay. Or possibly a paring knife that could also be fun. Mm. But a knife of some sort. Yeah. That's like specifically for preparing food. Um, yeah, that's, this is a good question. Um, I don't know. I, uh, I think I identify most strongly with my crock pot. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and go with my crock pot. Um, reliable, low maintenance. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, it, if you put if you put stuff in there and you leave it for a while, like you'll come back. You and, get good things out of it. Yeah, <laughs> you can come back and you can get some good things out of it for sure. Um, yeah, that's what I I would like to to think that I'm a crockpot. <laughs> I think you're a crockpot, Connor. Oh, that's <laughs> that's the best compliment you've ever given me. Um. Number three, what do you take from the constant mention of people saying they're dead or are ghosts despite being alive in independent people? Um, I don't know if you have immediate thoughts here. Yeah, I think it has to do with like this idea of fatalism um, mm-hmm. that is that is also part of the mix um, that we didn't touch on specifically, but... Um, the fatalism of like their um, class predicament, um, the fatalism of like this ideology and this lifestyle um, of like fighting against the land to try to um, as like you know one family or one individual to try to extract um, subsistence from it is like somehow you know. Um, in you know impossibility and and failures inevitable um and then that gets like the characters all understand this and then also like um the living death of like just um 
the misery of pursuing this lifestyle, even before it fails completely, um, like the, the sacrifice and the misery of doing this is like, it's such a deprivation of humanity that it's kind of a living death. Um, yeah. And it's part of like the, I think the harshness and the, like the, you know, quote unquote realism, um, or like the realist angle of, of the novel, um, and its critique of the, um, this like romanticist, um, you know, literary view, uh, this idealization. Yeah. Um, also two of the, the big instances, which the, the novel does. And then like just within its narration, and then it gets specifically voiced by, um, by Helgi at one point where, yeah, I, I found the section cause it's right at the beginning of book two. Um, and it is like talking about the end of book one where, um, Helgi says, um, Nani, have you ever noticed that some people are dead though they are alive? Um, haven't you ever seen it in some of the folks eyes that come here? I see it right away. They only have to look at me and I see it. They don't even have to look at me that day. Um, or that day that mother fell into grandma's arms, that was the day she died. She was never alive after that. Don't you remember how she looked at us that night? Um, everything that old Fritha pro- prophesied a couple of years ago has come true, mad as she was. The tyranny of man, she said. In this way, he'll kill you all. Um, so I think like some of it also gets connected to, to Bjarter, and then also like this section will go on to talk about God as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's like this this linking of there's this use of it to link the the deaths of like Bjarter's family to Bjarter as like his responsibility. Um I think is part of what's happening there, but then it is also getting tied into uh, the other stuff you were talking about of like the the system that they are under and how that it like you know is this state of living death. Yeah. Um, the um, part where it becomes the most interesting is where the, the grandmother um, basically thinks of when Noni goes to America as being like, well, he's dead now. <laughs> yeah. Um, and like, people don't come back from the dead. What are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there is a reference of um, Bjarter, like in, when the narration is in his perspective, referring to Noni as dead, he's like, my sons are dead, like in the various, in their various ways. Yeah. Um, um, and then Austa towards the end is like, Oh, I've been resurrected. And the grandmother is like, no, no, you haven't. <laughs> that doesn't <laughs> no happen. No, can be resurrected. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then the, like the instance that I'm thinking of is very early in the novel when um, it's from, Rosa's perspective um when the the various like farmers gather at Bjarter's home and they're all like drinking shitloads of coffee and um talking about sheep and stuff and it's like from her perspective it's like she sees them as dead um as like living dead um and there's a line to the effect of um like nobody really believed that these men could like live as independent farmers, like on this land, um, that they're basically just like lying to themselves <laughs> that, that they're, that this lifestyle is like 
viable. And in fact, they're like already dead. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, this does come up a lot in the novel and it has these like valences to it that I think are all connected. Yeah. Um, do you want to do the final question from Joe? <laughs> yeah. Um, please talk about what if Bjorter was a duelist under Tenna. It's fanfic time. <laughs> Um, I think Bjartar has the closest parallels to Toga for me. Okay, this um, is prefiguring another and one of the other questions that my answer was going to be. Um, <laughs> but sorry, go on. Yeah, well, and and just as like, by the time this episode has come out, people have listened to our Otori Akio Saga episode, but not our um apocalypse saga episode that hasn't come out yet so just for for context for like let's not do go into spoilers for if people are listening to this um but i i do think that you know we already are talking in the otori akio saga stuff about like toga as this um like in some ways like little akio Mm -hmm. like or like and i for me biarter is like the one who is um in some ways, like trying to, to live up to like this greater power, and it's like trying to like reinstantiate those beliefs throughout a lot of it. Um, that's like part of his failure throughout a lot of it is that in his striving for independence, he is like still reinstantiating this like oppressive thing just on a smaller scale, which I think is very much Toga. <laughs> yeah, um, I think, I think if Bjorter was a duelist on Utena, it would be, it would be an interesting permutation because i think the conflict in that duel would be like bjarter would be like no like you don't need the prince and you also don't need anthe like you and you shouldn't need them yeah it's making all you need is yourself yeah all you need is yourself like you should seize this power for yourself and remake the world like how you want it to be um, and yeah. not for like you know someone else, um, because like you'll never be able to see to like stand on your own and achieve this if you like are relying on like either of these people in any way. Um, yeah, which is like the exact opposite <laughs> of of what Utena is kind of about. Yeah, um, but he he would fit in there. Yeah. Um, would be a good foil for Utena, I feel like. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, moving on to emails from Ina. We got the we got the two big ones, Joe and Ina. Um, thank you so much as like your two most de- being the two most devoted fans to Ghost Divers, I feel like. Um, so uh, Ina has... Uh, there, there are six questions, but we'll get to the last one so question one uh you know i gotta ask about those homies getting kissed maybe even getting tucked um i feel like there's very little homo ki- no, uh, homie kissing going no one, on here no one it, yeah um noni okay yeah. finna finna does yes um i think alabara is too old for all of this to to like understand what all of this is about, yeah. But I do think Hadalbera might tuck the homies in. 
Alistair would initially. I don't know about like by the end of the novel, but I think she. Yeah. I think she would probably at this like before. Alistair, Alistair so Lilia kisses the homies goodnight and then doesn't understand why the the homies are getting weird about it. Uh huh. <laughs> or why um, she's getting until, weird about it. Yeah, or why she's getting weird about it. Um, because she has nobody to help explain sexuality to her. Um, she's just completely bereft with her feelings around puberty. Yeah. Um, and like no, no one to help guide her through that. Yeah. All um, the communists do though at the end. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and they are kissing Vendor goodnight and hopefully Vendor will, will come around you. Um, <laughs> For sure. Um, yeah. I think that's it. Yeah, I think... Helgi doesn't kiss the homies goodnight. No. No. Um, and I don't think uh, Gvender does either. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe ultimately, but... At the at the very end. It is... Part of the, the ambiguity and potentiality of the end of the novel is perhaps Gwender will become one who kisses the homies goodnight and in a, a new transformative way, not oh. the the uh, the way that like Asta Solilia was, was doing it but not understanding why, and I think Noni as well. Whereas like Gwender will perhaps like come to a pos- place of being like, No, I must kiss the homies goodnight. <laughs> yeah. And or just get like shot down the next day and murdered in yeah. mass which seems like yeah. it happened um, yeah um colum kitley does not kiss the homies goodnight <laughs> no <laughs> not, doesn't they get that one in not not at all not at all um bjarter is definitely anti-kissing the homies goodnight absolutely um, bjarter has no homies i i owe no kisses to no homies absolutely not yeah and i will accept none either Yes. To accept another homie's kisses is to indebt myself to him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and you can't be having that. Yeah. Um, second question. Who would you want haunting your land, and would you appease them by, by putting a rock on their carn? Um, I'm gonna... So, who would you want haunting your land is, like, obviously someone nice, but I, I feel like perhaps the more fitting thing here is, like, what would be the poetic one haunting your land? For me, there's no question. There's only one or There's only one possible answer to this question f- for me that I can, yeah. that I can think of. <laughs> what is it? it? The only person that I could ever imagine haunting my land is Nicolas Cage. And I would absolutely, I would absolutely appease his ghost by putting a uh, priceless fossil on it, um, so that uh, that he would have to give back to me later. Yeah. Um. So again, I I'm doing not who would I want haunting my land, but who do I think would haunt my land? Who would be the one who would torment me in the way that, like, you know. The, the people of summer houses are tormented by Colm Kitley. Um, and so I think it, I think it's Ano Hideaki. Oh, I think no. Ano haunts my land. <laughs> of um, course. And, and I, for a long time, refused to appease him by putting a rock on his cone. 
That's um, fair. Towards the end, I finally do. Um, and I, I have it inscribed of, I hope you figure out your gender shit someday, is what it <laughs> says on the, the headstone that I go and put there. Um, and then I watch the rebuild movies and then, and then I go and, it and then I go cliff. and I push the headstone off into the, and it breaks in the, the valley. It makes a weird sound. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, number three, who would be the funniest person from a show you've watched for the podcast to insert into the narrative in the place of Austa? Toga. <laughs> um, I think I'm going to say, uh, Oh, what, what was the not, what was like Shiro Amada's? This is just showing me how much I've, forget about Oethema's team. Who is the girl that Shiro Amada was like in love with? Oh, Kiki. No, not not Kiki. The, oh, oh, the... Uh, Aina. Aina. I think I would put Aina in here because then we can just like fully do the um <laughs> you know, end of Oethema's team, the, the going out onto fantasy. the land. Yeah, her getting her getting pregnant um I mean, it's already it's already in O eight MS team, so <laughs> that would just be sad. Yeah, that to me that would that wouldn't even be funny. That would just be sad because it would be so it would be so similar to what actually happens in mm-hmm. independent people. Um, <laughs> I do. I did just put into if we're just inserting the character in place that you did just advocate for Empreg Toga. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Toga, yeah. Toga, my sweet flower. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just think you know. I think that could work. Yeah. Um. Now choose one of the shows we've already watched for the podcast to insert Biarter and Austa into as the main characters for one episode in the vein of Taxi Driver homage in Second Gig. Look forward to Second Gig. Uh, please describe this to me and your other listeners via the podcast you're doing right now. Um, obviously, it's Utena. Yeah, it, uh, it has to be. Yeah. And um, it's like a, a weird episode that's like exploring a different aspect of like Utena and this inscription of like story and myth where um, the character of Asta Solilia does look an awful like lot like Utena and there's like weird parallels being drawn and it's unsure if that is utena or not it's in the um, same village where akio and anthe or Anth- yeah it's like one <laughs> of those it. to that like rural village connor connor people haven't gotten to this in the podcast yet well that's why it was totally made up i just yeah. made that part up <laughs> that doesn't actually happen um no, but definitely that that's we'll, the one. We'll put here. a spoiler spoiler alert in here. Yeah. Um Yeah, yeah, that's but agreed. I agree with you. I might I might just like bleep the 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 most offending parts. But it yeah, it's in that village in the part that people have been gotten to um in the apocalypse saga. Yep. Yeah. Um I can't really think of another like I feel like that's it. Yeah, that's you it. Know. Um, um, number five. Do you want to read this one? Yeah, number five. 
You know that icebreaker that's like, name one person from history that you would have dinner with? Do that for people from this book, and don't limit yourselves to historical figures they would know about. So, I think this is saying that we are picking a historical figure for people from this book to have dinner with. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, I'll, I'll do a couple. Um, okay. Bjartur is obviously going to choose one of the, like heroes for you know from the sagas he's gonna choose like yeah. one of the like the yom's vikings or whatever yeah um alista is gonna choose the um the like prince from snow white uh because she no one taught her history and that's the only book that she's ever been given yeah. um and Yeah, I think, I don't know. I don't know if anyone, and then Loxness is going to have dinner with Marks. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, uh, I think Helgi is going to have dinner with Nietzsche. <laughs> uh-huh. um, Gvender is going to have dinner with Ayn Rand. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, I missed. Okay, I totally um, forgot. The, and then the after dinner, part. he's so he's so disgusted with Ayn Rand that he then wishes that he had asked to have dinner with with Marx. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, you know, I totally blew that the last part of "Don't limit yourselves to historical figures they would know about." Yeah. Um, but you know, sorry. <laughs> um, and uh. I think Noni ha- has dinner with like w- some old poet, you know. No, yeah, Noni um, has dinner with like, like John Muir, you know. Yeah, s- like something like that. Uh, let's see. Um, um, Ingi. Oh, I'm trying to think of a good one for Ingi. Um, Ingi has dinner with Loxness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, it's tough. I'm trying to come up with a good, uh, like, someone Calvera who is like. Has dinner with Jesus Christ. Yes, for sure. <laughs> Um, <laughs> no question. Yeah. Um, um. Yeah, I think Ingi has insert like like purportedly liberal politician who ended up just being like extremely conservative. Ingi yeah. has dinner with that person. Yeah. Um. um choose the one of many. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, That's why I'm having a hard time choosing. I'm just like, there's so many. Um, yeah. I don't know Rosa definitely had like intentionally chooses to have dinner with some famous chef. Yeah. Um, like I'm going to like Julia Child here, but like basically just like want someone who's going to cook really good food for her. Yeah. Is is her intention here? Absolutely. Um. And uh, I want to do Finna as well. Um, who would Finna have dinner with? Some like like. Like Jane Goodall, 
Yeah. Or some, like, zoologist, I feel like. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's a good <laughs> rundown of these. Yeah. Yeah, that's a tough exercise. Um, I think I think we did I think we did okay there. Yeah, and then the final one is I guess the real independent people were the friends we made a lot, and then it cuts off. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's but, it for questions. Yeah, those were those were great questions. Um, yeah. Thank you, uh, Ina and Joel. Um, okay. Well, we promised ourselves that we would not record for four hours so yeah we would not exceed four hours yes people have uh will hear after where we laugh about now that we've said it it's gonna happen um so shall we do la, final la, 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 la. colin kitley <laughs> bleeds bleeds a stride la, 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 la. um yeah yeah it's it's happened um, um, you can follow me at Foxmomnia on Twitter. You can also follow me at Garfred Aloud, where I read Garfield Aloud in the camera. Where can people follow? Or, yeah, into a camera. Where can people follow you, Connor? Uh, y'all can follow me at Rabelais, uh, R-A-B-B-L-A-A-S. Uh, and you can follow the podcast at Ghost Divers Pod. Um, join the Abnormal Mapping Discord if you would like to. Just be cool. Don't be an asshole. Um, Listen to Ornate Stairwalls, my movie podcast. Uh, look forward to Pondering Putan, our Crow High manga podcast coming, you know, summer of 2022. Um, go to exportodd.io and support the network. I think that's everything. I think that's so. the stuff I normally cover, right? Yeah, I think I think that's pretty much it. Um, and then, of course, um, Happy New Year, everyone. Um, yeah. We are looking forward to uh, sharing uh, 2022 with you all. Um, and uh, yeah, um, enjoy uh, enjoy what we have in store yeah. for the second season. Before we do our big final goodbye, I just want to, I realized that, um, I don't think we've actually said this on the podcast. So our, our plans for After Utena, um, I did mention we're going to do the Ghost in the Shell 1995 ghost in the shell to innocence um second gig and solid state society um as like one big season then we're gonna do bacano um then serial experiments lane uh then paranoia agent um and then kino's journey will will get us to the next new year special oh that's so. that's such a great line <clears throat> Yeah, and after Kino's journey, we're doing Iron Blooded Orphans, but that's going to be in 2023. But I guess I can also say that year. That has been announced, and we'll take up like half of 2023 because yeah. it's 50 episodes, and um, I feel like I'm not going to try and do 10 episodes like we did with Ray Earth because there's just more that happens in each episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, lot to look forward to. Uh, season two of Ghost Divers is going to be uh, it's going to be a wild ride. So um, yeah, Connor, we've already done six seasons. Well, <laughs> I mean, we I have I have a like a parallel concept of our seasons in my own mind. Mm-hmm. Um, like maybe bye we'll... everyone. <laughs> 
right. See everybody. Have a have a great bye. Uh, bye. I've got a turf house and a dog. Sheep to fill my flock. They want me not to buy this land, but I am an independent man.
final clap? Yeah. See, I got confused because when we did um, second gig intro, we talked about it as like season two of Ghost Divers. If I remember right. I don't know. Not that it matters. Or did, or did we talk about doing season two of Ghost in the Shell standalone complex? I don't remember. I think we talked about it. We'll have to. Well, whatever. It's okay if I look stupid. It'll be funny. Play, play the tapes. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. I'm not going to do it. But people will get there. Yeah. And then they can tell us. Um, you want to do 51? Okay. All right. Okay. Um, we're getting very close to hitting four hours of recording. We are, but yeah. we but we can goof off for like five minutes. Yeah, yeah. We want. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. Sorry, I didn't text you like I said I would. I'm just been um, preparing stuff because uh, Sarah is gonna move in uh, next year. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, so we're trying to get everything already. Um, it's going to be like end of January um, that she moves in because um, she finally graduated and then um, she got a job. It's like remote. Yeah. Um, so she decided that she wanted to um, move in here. Now Sarah will be listening to half of the podcast and being like it's 1 30 please come to bed yep. <laughs> stop talking about Icelandic novel <laughs> uh exactly yeah um yeah and it's funny because my uh my office where like where I record is right across the hall from the bedroom um so yeah she'll be sleeping and like I'll be recording right across the hall um so <laughs> You know, she knows that's coming. I did tell her, I was like, hey, you know, you actually are like working from home. So if you want my office, you can have it. And then I'll just move my, like my desk and my recording studio into like the den. Um, And she was like, no, 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 I, I prefer the den. I prefer working the den. And I was like, all right, well, there you go. Mr. Chance. Um, now you're going to have to hear me record it at one thirty <laughs> every other Saturday. Um, yeah, thankfully Emily can sleep really easily, but like when she's going to bed, uh, I'm just in the closet of our bedroom <laughs> recording. Yeah. I think, so, I think it will be fine, especially if we yeah. close like both of the doors. I don't think it'll be a problem. Um, we were doing stairwells once and uh, I forget how Emily came up, but I mentioned Emily towards the end of a recording. Um, and then like she was falling asleep at that moment. So the next day she was like, what did you say about me on the podcast? <laughs> um, it wasn't bad. It was, oh, of it was course. just funny yeah. of being like, she just heard her name as she was falling asleep. <laughs> yeah. And then it just stuck in there. Um. But yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of, um, 
it's it's an interesting time uh i mean i'm really excited like for her to move in um because it's been six years that we've been like together long distance and now we're finally like gonna get to like live in the same place um yeah so it's really yeah i just have like emotions about it that are all positive but i'm not uh really even able to articulate yet um yeah but i'm just really looking forward to it um i'm gonna stop recording yeah sure that's a good idea are set correctly not that that matters okay time.is is up um, um oh yeah let me get time.is up yeah I, I don't have it up i like to at least glance at the questions beforehand so my answer isn't just a complete dud yeah um but also like i want to have to kind of think about them in the moment uh i want the answer to be at least somewhat like reactive uh so yeah i think just glancing at him enough to like have them in my brain as we as we start recording yeah it's probably good um, oh do you want to do a time that is clap and then do a drink check yeah yeah let's do it okay okay um we'll do nine Um, I felt decent about that. Yeah, I think that's probably good enough. I mean, um, I can't recall any time <laughs> you telling me, like, oh, that clap, yeah, that was a disaster. That yeah, made my life it, really hard. It is mostly a suggestion. Um, also, we'll sometimes have a couple claps, like, even if it's just the one at the beginning and the end, and usually one of them is pretty close, so if I, like, line that one up and just listen to our, our dialogue for parts where it seems like we're going back and forth a little bit more. Um, I can usually tell like, Oh yeah, it's lining up. All right. So, okay. Um, Cause some of it is you also just want to listen and make sure that it sounds okay. Um, yeah. But the big thing is it just helps me make sure that like I'm getting, th- it just makes it way easier to get it close. And then I can kind of listen and, and fudge it around a little bit if I need to. Um, oh, can you, can you do these um, run through the character names? For me. Oh yeah. So I do don't you want me to. I, yeah, just so I, I think I have a decent idea of how to pronounce them, but I don't want to just completely blow it. Yeah. Um, also, I didn't put in the names of a bunch of the other farmers, but I don't know if there's I any specific just, ones you want to add in. Yeah. I was. Yeah, I was being silently amused by that. Um. um just because I don't know, like we might have specific stuff to go into, but I just wanted to have this as like. If it if I'm talking about other farmers, it's probably going to be in the context of like, oh, let's actually talk about like a uh, a passage where they come up. Um, otherwise, I don't know. Maybe you have more to say about them, but if no, you want to put their names only... in, go ahead. No, it's no, not really. Yeah. Um, there's um Oliver of Istadal or Istadale. Um, be like Istadaler. Um, there's the Fal King. Um. I'm trying to think of, like, other big ones. There's, like, Thorir. Yeah, Thorir. Also, like, some of them change slightly towards the end of the book, I feel like. 
There's like I, one that's like that's doesn't right. appear or like a new one who appears or something. I forget. Um, yeah. But uh, so Gunvor is the, the woman. Um, mm-hmm. And then Colum Kitley. Um, so for the, when you roll a it's double like L. A stop. Yeah, there's like a stop. So it's like Colum Kitley. Um, okay. Uh, Gwythbjartur Jonsson or just Bjartur. Um which is usually what the book says. Mm-hmm. Um, Rosa. So main thing there is that it's not like the Z sound that would be in Rose. It's like a, the S, not Z. So it's Rosa. Yeah, Rosa. Um, Austa Solilia. Um, this one, I don't think you have as much of a role because it's actually a, a contraction of soul, sun, and then Lilia, which means Lily. So her name like mean, means beloved sun Lily. Um, mm. Um, Halbera. Um, and it's like, it's like Austa, right? Yeah. Austa. Austa. Okay. This is so in order to help with like reading through this book, um, like faster because I, the week before this week, um, Q was like home for a while because a like stomach bug just ripped through daycare. And so like mm. their classroom was closed for a while and everything. Um, and so I didn't get my like reading time during lunch breaks like I normally would. Um, and so I ended up realizing that I could get the book, uh, for free on a certain service because it was the first book I was ever going to listen to on the audiobook service. And I sped it up. So I had it at like two times the speed, I think. And then I was uh-huh. reading along while listening to it. Um, cause I still like wanted to actually read it like if i just listen to it i'm not going to get it the same way but it was just like a way to like help me really focus and like read faster than i normally do um because i I tend to enjoy the sound of words and so i spend more time like reading them in my head than i think some people do who like speed read um yeah but this kind of gave me that but like helped me speed it up um, but what was funny about it is that he was pretty close to pronunciation, except I, I felt like he was given a pronunciation guide, but not given a guide being like, there's an accent over the A and the O in Asta Solilia. And so he like said Asta instead of Asta. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but was still like doing all the other sounds correctly. Um, like he still said like Colum Kitley or like Hadlbera. Um So yeah, it was, it was interesting. There was just like these small moments where I'm like, eh. <laughs> the other one was uh instead of yon yon <laughs> oh yeah doing yon. like the unaccented o yon instead of yon i was like okay um but yeah then um with finna or finna uh, an interesting thing is that whenever you see uh Gvuth, like in with um that like since it's such an old word and it means God, like the old pronunciation hasn't changed. And so you, you still get this like V sound in it that doesn't exist in any other G word. Um, it's just weird like that. Um, but that's why you get Helgi with Munder or Gvender and they like add in the V oh, for the yeah. nickname. Um, and then Yon or Noni, which is just like a common nickname for Yon. Um, the Rysmerians, uh, Yon and the madam, who I don't think ever gets named, um, and their son, um, Engelver Arnerson Jonsson. Um, and you like hit the G kind of hard for like Engelver. It's like almost a K. Um, yeah, I'll probably just say Ingi. Yeah, Ingi. Um, Inky can almost sound like Inky. 
like interesting. Ink. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Um, G is the like one letter that that changes the most between words in Icelandic. Almost every other letter is like extremely consistent across words. Um, the one other one that's slightly unusual is U, which tends to be a pretty like short vowel, anyways. But um, the U R at the end of names uh, in like Old Norse, it was literally just R. Like it would be like B J A R or yeah B J A R T R. Um, not like E R or anything, just like T R. Yeah. Um, and that like got turned into a syllable with a U, but people you still kind of just say like Bjarter, <laughs> like you're just like hitting an R, um, at the end. But yeah, so okay. those are names. Yeah, I that, feel like I the, think I can. Yeah. I feel like the biggest ones that would be easy to like trip up on are um, Rosa instead of Rosa and then Asta Solilia because it's kind of a unusual and long name. Yeah. Um, and then um, Rice Marians, which means like, so Uti is like out because they also say Uti Rasmiri. Um, mm-hmm. And then like um, Rice is red and then Miri is like Meyer. You can see okay. the cognate in that one. You can also kind yeah. of see it in in Reith. Um but okay. Um, drink check. Yeah, you can go first this time. So the f- I have two beers in here because this beer feels feels very appropriate for this um, novel to me. Um, uh-huh. This is not like really a wine or cocktail novel to me. Maybe just like straight gin or something. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think yeah. either. Um, Gin is like the experience of reading it, and then beer is like what probably closer to what they would drink. Yeah. Um, but so the first one I have is from a, a Wisconsin brewery, um, Tiranina, and it's called Rocky's Revenge, and it's got like a um, sea monster coming out of a, the ocean attacking some fishermen on the bottle, mm-hmm. um, which you know this is this is a far more landlocked novel but still feels like kind of appropriate um this like mythic beast attacking the like um you know lowly laborer basically sure um it's i i'm drinking it first because it's kind of the both of these are actually kind of colum kitley themed to me um so there's that one and then the other one i have is from new glarus and it's the their wisconsin belgian red um and i got this because it's the the blood that runs on the fields <laughs> oh you know? yeah of course uh, yeah yeah at the beginning and the yeah. end yeah. yeah running blood the red blood in the grass blade, and lullab- <laughs> ba, ba, la la yeah um, yeah yeah ba, ba, la la um so yeah, those are my perfect. two beers. Um, I have some. Uh, I have some sparkling water, which is not thematic at all. Um, it's a little. It, it's strawberry cucumber, which um, I don't think Bjarter would like any either of those things. Yeah. Um, you know, that's just that's basically just slop. That you know, if you eat. Sl- uh, soft food like that it just really just weakens you yeah um and uh and i have some some red which is slightly on theme um some red uh rooibos chai tea nice because um, it just 
want to get that caffeine kick. Yeah. The more appropriate, if you wanted, like, really spot on for the, the novel, would just be copious amounts of coffee. Just, like, by the end, you've drunk, like, <laughs> nine cups. Yeah. yeah, that's very true. Um, yeah. Maybe I'll brew some coffee, like, midway through. Um, <laughs> and we can talk about, you know, the the various ailments of our sheep this, yeah. <laughs> uh, this winter. Um, just, like, shrugging um, coffee. Yeah. Well, I feel like we do have a lot to get through. Do we want to get into the podcast? Or do you have yeah, anything else you want to talk about first? No, I'm good. Um, I don't know how long you want to you want to make this one. Because um, we can... Yeah. I mean, if you don't... I, if... I, I think I don't want to exceed four hours, but... Oh, yeah. No, yeah. No no question. No question. <laughs> my, my goal is, like, a normal length for us, which is, like, probably around three, but... Okay. Um, that works. Yeah, if, if if we're, like, hitting that three-hour mark and we still have a little bit to talk about, or we're, like, still... If we hit... When we hit three hours, if we haven't gotten to questions yet, we have to do questions. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll that's put fair. that down. Um, sure. That, I think that's, that's totally the, fine. Yeah. I, yeah, we're... Four hours is definitely not, is, is definitely too much. I was just thinking if you had a preference about like something less than three hours, then I would keep that in mind when we're going through. Yeah. Um, I don't think yeah, we're going to hit four hours. Um, people listening to this after the episode is run, or if what this after the, the end music, um, feel free to laugh at me if we hit four hours, but uh, <laughs> I don't if, think yeah, we're if, going to. Because this is like, ghost divers if you say i don't think we're gonna hit four hours we are cursed mm. we are absolutely cursed to hit four hours yeah like we're um. just fucked now <laughs> colum kitley reddens the mic yeah <laughs> <laughs> la la baba la la it's it's happened before and it will happen again yeah it's not a surprise just another just another corpse of a four-hour episode that we we live to record um, all right, I'm going to start the episode. Okay. <laughs>